The following is brought to you by the Social Suplex Podcast Network. Hey guys, this is Matt Seidel, and you're listening to Keeping It Strong Style. Yo, this is Rich Ladder from One Nation Radio. This is brought to you by the Social Suplex Podcast Network. We present to you the Ace of Podcasts, Keeping It Strong Style. Let's go. It's the Ace of Podcasts, Keeping It Strong Style. Covering New Japan, they ready to hold it down. Jeremy Donovan and the young boy Josh. Come and hit a job out in Barrio the Frost. From Tokyo Dome over to the G1. Social Suplex is the network where we can get it done. I'm a chiller. And let them have it Cause this is just an intro Keeping the strong style Six stars from the get go Boy Yeah from Tampa Bay To the Tokyo Dome This is Keeping It Strong Style With your host Jeremy Donovan And the young boy Joshua Smith And thank you for listening Welcome to Keeping It Strong Style The ace of podcasts On the Social Suplex Podcast Network Jeremy Dominic here with the young boy Josh Smith and Sir Sam Brown from WrestlingHeadlines.com. On today's show, we'll be covering all the latest news, answering your questions, and discussing the IWGP IC title reigns of Shinsuke Nakamura. You can support our show by subscribing to the Social Suplex Podcast Network or to Keeping It Strong Style on the podcast app of your choice and leaving a rating interview. You can also get all the podcasts and columns over at socialsuplex.com. Check out our Pro Wrestling Tea store, prowrestlingtees.com slash socialsuplex. That's where you can get your official Keeping It Strong style t-shirt. And if you enjoy this podcast, please consider making a one-time or monthly donation by visiting socialsuplex.com slash donate and clicking on the donate button under the Keeping It Strong style logo. This week's episode is brought to you by the NJPW EXT, the only browser extension for njpwworld.com with features like dark mode improved translations and layouts custom and shared playlists synchronized viewing parties and much 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 more it takes njpw world to the next level visit njpwext.us today for details and for next week's voting for next week's topic voting will drop tuesday noon eastern time we will be having Rich Latta on from One Nation Radio, and he's chosen the poll theme of the elite. So your voting options will be Kenny Omega, the Young Bucks, Hangman, Adam Page, and Cody. So go out there, get your votes, and let us know what you want to talk Wait. about next week. What about Marty? Well, on a Twitter poll, you can only have four options, and, and plus he's oh really, and, and plus he's dead. Ah. Uh. <laughs> And, and everyone, we Rich will just love it if you get Cody. So, <laughs> so everyone, vote Cody. Vote Cody. Vote once, vote on, Vote Cody. <laughs> I didn't realize you can only have four uh, options on the Twitter poll. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. So I'm serious, though, guys. Rich, Rich will just absolutely, he'll adore it if everyone jumps in there and votes Cody. That will be his absolute favorite thing for a great episode. <laughs> vote Cody. Listen, listen, Sam, I don't want to tell you how to live your life, but you've got to get some serious heat with Rich. So. <laughs> I can handle it. I live halfway around the world. I can handle the beef with Rich. <laughs> Oh, man. So like you heard in the intro, we have uh, Sir Sam on this week from Wrestling Headlines slash Lords of Pain. First time on the show. I mean, we've known each other for a while now and talked via, you know, Twitter. But yeah, first time having you on the show. How you doing, man? 
I'm very well. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. I've been listening since day one to you guys, and wow. it's uh, I've I've as as I think we'll probably get into in a moment. Um, I've lived my New Japan journey with you guys, so it's really cool to be on the show. I'm really yeah, I'm really excited and really excited to break down Shinsuke Nakamura and the IC title as well. It's going to be a lot. I've had a lot of fun doing the research for this. Uh, yeah, really looking forward to the show. Now, while this might be your first time actually being on the show, it's not the first time oh, you've ever been mentioned on the show. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, boy. Boy, that was some fun. <laughs> I, I do believe that I cut a scathing promo on you, sir, that was uh, audio broadcast on the show. Yep, there, yeah, there was. We, uh, did you play my promo on the show? or I think we did. I think we did, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, yeah, excellent. That was great fun. On the Ricky and Clive Invitational, for those of you who don't listen into Ricky and Clive, we they, they had a, a quiz time invitational last year, and me and Josh ended up going against one another in the semifinals, and I uh, I cut a – I thought it was a pretty pretty great promo, personally. Oh, it was. From, it my, was. from my garage here <laughs> in Australia, talking about how I was going to take him to school and show him how great Aussies were, and then uh, this guy came in and – told me I had the weight of the world on my shoulders and he was worried about me. And it turns out he was very right to be worried. About me. And, uh, he absolutely towed me up. Oh, my gosh. The interesting thing now I'm thinking about is, like, I've got two men that I bested in that tournament on the show at me today. We just need to call Rance Morris over and uh, round out this mm. uh, bunch. <laughs> you yeah. and him still on speaking terms? He was pretty salty about that. <laughs> got pretty I, tense at the end of that. I, I think I think we are, but I actually haven't spoken to Rand since that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I will say this: uh, me and Jeremy, uh, because we're partners, it was more of a uh, respectful, strong style based competition, and it was tooth and nail. We didn't need to cut promos on each other, but then, you know, Sam started digging my name through the mud. And- <laughs> Start we making did a, about we did the WWE Attitude Era program. You start making about the entertainment and not the sport. <laughs> you, you see what when Josh and I were not, it was like when two stable mates, it was like you know, yes. Nakamura and Okada in the G1 when they're both in chaos, yes. like they're both in chaos, but it's for the G1. But then Sam comes and, in as Bullet Club and it's like, nah. <laughs> and, and, and uh, if I remember correctly, those two guys went went head to head in tw- in the twenty four and twenty five G one climax, and you know, I-, I caught Jeremy with the spinning armbar at the last minute. I just it was like that much. Mm-hmm. Next time we go up, who knows? It's gonna be a rainmaker. Pull <laughs> <laughs> my the hell out of me. <laughs> that was actually a, it, it. Actually, was a count out. <laughs> It was a ref stoppage. My stable mate, my wife came in and threw in the towel. <laughs> You've had enough, Sam. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, Sam, anytime we have new guests on the show for the first time, kind of like to get a little background on them on their New Japan journey. So, how did you start watching New Japan Pro Wrestling? Uh, it's I've I'm a fairly I'm, fairly recent convert to new japan i the first match i ever watched was omega and okada from wrestle kingdom 11 uh, and i started watching regularly wrestle kingdom 12 so there's actually a podcast of me um i was on the lords of pain radio post show because i'm a writer for for lords of pain and i've you know been a wwe fan for a long time but um they wanted 
for the Wrestle Kingdom 12 post show, someone who'd never watched New Japan before, because that was the case for a lot of people. That was an onboarding point for a lot of people. And there's audio of me straight after my first show kind of reflecting on it. So that was where I kicked off my, my regular journey for New Japan was Wrestle Kingdom 12 that uh, when, but off the back of the, you know, the amazing work that Kenny Omega did against Okada throughout that year. Yeah, man, that's a great place to jump in. That's a great place to start. Uh, I feel like that's where a lot of the popularity of the show kind of uh, increased. Um, I wonder what that uh, initial conversation was like. I remember uh, a couple of years ago, Ricky and Clive watched the Wrestle Kingdom, having watched No New Japan, and both of them were like, "Eh, it's pretty good. And then like a few months later, Ricky watched this G1. He's like, my God. (laughs) (laughs) And his whole tone changed. <laughs> <laughs> the it's interesting because I, I know having watched it, like having reflected on, you know, what I've learned. I certainly, having mostly been a WWE viewer, you know, having dabbled in the odd indie thing that I'd seen, and of course watching those Omega and Okada matches, I I certainly wasn't ready for the Suzuki Goto match from Wrestle Kingdom 12, and I, oh. I really, I really did not like it the first time. I um, actually spoke on there like quite negatively towards it, and I've since gone back and watched it now, sort of more understanding the niche of what they're do- what they're actually doing. Um, mm. But looking at it from my sort of WWE centric world, I was like, this, this, I, I don't like this. What these guys are doing, um, but now. You know, I absolutely love Minoru Suzuki, <laughs> um, and, and I, I, I've, I've gone back and watched that match and been like, man, this is a hell of a match. These is, you know, and the character stuff they're doing is actually, you know, quite, quite nuanced in there. But at the time, yeah, that was a weird one for me. Um, but I, I really enjoyed that show in general because, you know, of course the Omega, the Omega and Chris Jericho match. I think I said that if if Omega ever wanted to do an audition for the WWE, then that's about as good as you can ever get. Um, for And, you know, the Okada-Naito match, uh, um, Implications, who was on your last show, he did some really great columns sort of summing up the build to that. Uh, and I think there was also Showbuckle, who you guys have shouted out a few times, did a really great video sort of explaining the story. So I, I loved that match as well um, because I sort of knew what was coming up to it. Um, yeah, that was a really great time to kick off. And I think the thing that really truly cemented me as a fan, though, was the the G1 that year. Watching the G1 is just the highlight every single year. Um so both years I've been a fan and I've gone back and watched some other G1s sort of watching the highlights. And it's such a, such an amazing time to be a fan of wrestling. Yeah, man. Love, love me a good G1. And I'm, I'm you know, very hopeful that we're, you know, G1 is going to be all set for this year and definitely a great place to jump in. And that's one, you know, the, that's a tournament where most of the match of the year candidates will come from. So speaking of that, what has been your favorite new Japan match? It's it's hard to tell. I think um, the Omega Okada matches will always have like a special place in my fandom because they're the ones that sort of turned me on to to um, New Japan. And you know, watching that Wrestle Kingdom Eleven match was just like a brain explosion of like, wow, this is something completely. I didn't know wrestling could be like this. Mm. Um, just an amazing. So that will always have a really special place in my new Japan fandom. But if I had to make a, a choice, I'd probably say the 
Ibushi and Kota Ibushi and Tanahashi match from the finals of the mm. 2018 G1. I adore that match. It is so amazing. It's so cinematic in the way that they, um, the story that they tell. And I, I will never not get goosebumps for that moment where Kota Ibushi strikes Tanahashi down and then Tanahashi, like, you can almost see if it's like a scene in a movie where the hero, like, looks down at the ground. I don't know if you guys watch anime, but, like, uh, yes, they yes. looks down at the ground, like, grabs some dust and sees it, like, trickle through their hands <laughs> and has a flashback to their family and their friends and then just roars across the ring, just this absolute force. And it, I don't know, the, well, the first time I saw that, I, like, jumped out of my, of my couch. Um, Here's the funny thing about that is Tanahashi has done that so many times throughout his career. And in fact, I think we're even going to talk about some matches where we're going to see him doing that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But so is Kota Ibushi. And Kota Ibushi, I think, is more known for that than Tanahashi. Even though Tanahashi's always had it in his repertoire, Ibushi does it all the time. People talk about murder Kota, you know, and the times where he snapped. And even like in the Wrestle Kingdom match with Nakamura, he kind of snaps and starts going into strikes. And I I have to think because he's such a big fan of uh, Tanahashi, that maybe he even borrows that from him. Definitely. But in that match, when Tanahashi did it, he's like, let me show you how it is done, Junior. <laughs> well, it was like it was like you had Murder Coda pushing him across the, the ring, and then he was like, oh, wait, this is a force that you're not ready for, Kota Ibushi. And Kota's like trying to slap him, and Tanahashi's just staring him down and pushing forward, pushing forward. And... There are times that Tanahashi's done similar things, but that was the first time I'd seen it. And I feel like that's still the most evocative time I've seen it done when it's just been so out there. And then the ending of that match when Kota Ibushi is just standing there to take the high-fi flow, and there's this... It's just such an incredible shot of, um, of him standing there, just completely helpless, unable to do anything other than stand and take it. Um, I think what I think what yeah. you're trying to say about Tanahashi is that he showed him his final form. <laughs> we, that, well, he, that, went, <laughs> he went Super Saiyan yeah, three. <laughs> that whole and, that, and, that and here's the thing: he, he couldn't he couldn't uh, keep his final form for too long. It would weaken him. But <laughs> when he's at his final form, he's almost insurmountable. Yeah. That that yeah, match. So I think- that match was um, Final Form Frieza versus Super Saiyan Goku on Planet Namek. <laughs> that's what that match was. Yeah, that was... Yeah, no, so no, 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 that's... no. I think you're talking about the Kenny Omega versus Tanahashi match, sir. <laughs> 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 yeah, I think I think if I had to pick a favorite match, that would, that would be the one. Um, just so cinematic, so emotive, so evocative. And yeah, that moment, those, those few moments just... Ha- absolutely spine tingling and to also have seen Tanahashi's journey across the G1 up to that point it was like when he was raging across that ring it was like he was you know saying to all of us doubters who'd been like Tanahashi's you know he's done he's not going to be at the top level anymore he was just saying like no piss off my time is not done I'm like I'm raging against the dying light Um, (laughs) and just just this ball this force coming across the ring that was yeah so that would be my favorite new japan match well you're talking about uh kotobushi and tanahashi quite a bit here so that leads us into our last question 
favorite wrestler in New Japan? Is it one of those two guys or is it someone else? I saw this question on the rundown sheet and it's hard to say because like Kenny Omega was my original favorite wrestler in New Japan. Like, you know, like many people who came in it from, yeah, Ken- <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy's got a Kenny Omega shirt on. But uh, I would say my favorites now would be, I, I love Zack Sabre Jr. I think everything he does is is hilarious, but also like he's at the same time as being hilarious, he is like utterly serious and an utter like ass kicker. Um, Absolutely. John, John Moxley is my favorite wrestler of all time. So Dean Ambrose, I came back to watching wrestling in 2014 when Daniel Bryan was going, doing the yes movement. And I always say I came back for Daniel Bryan, but I stayed because of Dean Ambrose. And so, but I, I wouldn't really call him a new Japan wrestler. He's, he's like something different. Um, Minoru Suzuki, I, I just love the the character of Minoru Suzuki, um, and the just the in the intensity that he brings. Um, you know, like Zack Saber Junior, he you know he has got a little bit of almost humor to him sometimes. But you know, when when it's about to go down, it's about to go down with him. But if I had to say the guy who I most get behind um, more than anything else, it, it's probably not someone who's been brought up on your show before, but it would be Robbie Eagles. Um, for those of you who can't tell by my accent, I'm, I'm an Aussie uh, and I've seen Robbie Eagles on the Australian Indies. And so him coming into uh, him coming into new Japan was awesome. And I got really into his storyline last year where he joined, where he ended up, throughout the the best of the super juniors kind of had that tension with bullet club and eventually ended up turning on um, turning on bullet club. And I was actually at the Sydney show where he did that. Um, And that was, that's probably one of my favorite nights of watching live wrestling that I've got another, like from another local organization who my, my best, one of my best friends wrestles for, I've got a really, like a, a night that I that I love from that, but that one and the Robbie Eagles turning on Bullet Club night was just insane. Um, so good to be in a live crowd and see that, um, and see this guy who I'd seen on the Aussie Indies getting like uh, a louder cheer than Tanahashi and Okada um, because of this story that he'd gone through. So, yeah, my I, my I feel slightly offended at this point because you said someone <laughs> who. Hasn't been mentioned on the show. We talk about Robbie Eagles on this show quite often. Oh, I meant as <laughs> meant as the favorite. The favorite. So. <laughs> That's slanderous. That's yeah. slanderous. <laughs> yeah, so, no, I knew so it. I knew Robbie what you Eagles. meant. Yeah, um, but others I love. Shingo Takagi, obviously Tanahashi. Um, yeah, I'll I'll stop talking now because I could just list the whole roster. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was going to say he's like man, Doki. He just with his his aerial. Lucha Libre stylings. <laughs> and he's pipe. <laughs> I love it when Jeff Cobb shows up. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. TJP on the North American circuit is so good. <laughs> no, but uh, that's awesome, man. I, I actually, like, it's always uh, great to kind of, you know, we have guests on, kind of see what their background is and, you know, it's quite obvious that you were like really passionate about this, which uh, is awesome. Not that other people aren't, but, uh, you know, it really comes through. So that's awesome. 
Yeah, so uh, I just I just blabber on until one of you guys cuts me off. So. <laughs> oh, we're, we're respectful hosts. We're, we're not going to cut you off. We're going to let you keep going. And oh God, that's how, long that's night. how, that's how we end up with night. four hour episodes. Yeah, <laughs> on, on this on this show we let everybody get, get their stuff in. <laughs> yeah, we let everybody get their stuff in on this show. Mm-hmm. Equal opportunity, and we, and we sell for you too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So um, let's transition into this week's topic. So the the poll option was best IWGP IC champions that featured Goto, Naito, Tanahashi, and Nakamura. And winning the poll overwhelmingly was Shinsuke Nakamura. Blew it away. This was, you know, the previous polls had been pretty close, but... At the end of the day, uh, Nakamura kind of blew it blew it away, and uh, rightfully so. Probably, you know, the, the most iconic IWGP uh, IC champion in history, the guy who elevated the belt to the next level, and we're going to talk about that here in a second. Um, so let's kind of talk about overall thoughts real quick on Shinsuke Nakamura. One thing uh, that I've learned about Shinsuke Nakamura is that he might have the greatest collection of epic, incredible nicknames of any wrestler ever in history. Uh, let me read you just a list. Some of these you will know. Most of them I don't, I didn't know, and I doubt most people will know unless they're like diehards. So, the King of Strong Style, the Super Rookie, the Child of God, the Black <laughs> Savior, the Super Nova, El Samurai de NJPW. <laughs> <laughs> The chosen savior, the one who seeks the truth with deep desire, the artist. <laughs> <laughs> what the heck? <laughs> he will he will always be known to me as knackers, though. <laughs> <laughs> so Sam, your overall thoughts on uh, Shinsuke Nakamura? Yeah, I I don't know. Having the first time I ever saw Nakamura was was on NXT that that NXT match with Sam Zayn and. <laughs> Yeah, I only, I only started watching in 2017, no, man. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I'm not making fun of you. I think it's, it's just funny to think that. I'm like, holy crap. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, hey, you guys invited me on, right? <laughs> um, it's on you. Um, yeah, and, and the thing that all, that just strikes me from him is just his incredible charisma and just effortless charisma as well. Like, I feel like the most natural comparison to him is Tanahashi because, you know, they were sort of, they came through at about the same time at first. It looked like Nakamura was like this chosen prodigy that would dare, but that would be, you know, the number one guy, but then Tanahashi sort of overtook him and Nakamura had to almost catch up in, in, in many ways. And, and while Tanahashi is like sort of really, I'd say earnest, um, he's obviously he's charismatic, but he's like really earnest. Nakamura has just got like the rock star, effortless rock star charisma. Um, you know, without even trying, he just oozes cool um, and oozes. You just you just want to look at him um, from the way he looks, the way he moves, the facial expressions. It just is so effortlessly charismatic and cool. Um, you know, whereas other wrestlers, you can sort of see them pushing it and, and it fit like you can feel them 
doing the moves um, with Nakamura. It's just so natural and effortless in his charisma. Um, that's that's my my I guess my main impression of who what I don't know what sets Nakamura apart from almost anyone else really. Uh, yeah, I think with Nakamura, here's the funny thing, and I'll try to keep it brief so we can kind of get a little further into this. But, you know, Nakamura, the first time I thought I really became aware of him and saw him, I think for like a lot of Westerners was obviously Wrestle Kingdom 9, you know, the epic entrance, the, uh, you know, the Freddie Mercury, Michael Jackson illusions, you know, the style of his wrestling with all the strikes, almost like Bruce Lee-esque, um, you know, just all the, like he mentioned, all the charisma and, and everything of that nature. And, you know, so I kind of saw him there. I started, I became a huge fan. I've been following his career ever since then. And that was the first time I thought I, I had become aware of him until I realized that I had watched so many of his matches before, but didn't. It wasn't until way later that I connected that this guy that I watched back in like 05, 06, 07 was this guy in 2015. Like, I didn't even realize that they were literally the same guy. Like, I didn't connect it at all. Like, and then I realized, like, oh, that super rookie guy the guy that Brock Lesnar squashed like that was Nakamura oh, oh my god I had no idea bro it, it, it's weird and it's funny because us admitting that like the first time that a lot of people became aware of him in 2015 probably like there's probably like super fans who've know who've been following him since like his early rookie days who are like probably laughing about that the same way I laughed about like sort of Sam seeing him in NXT and <laughs> you know, what year? What year is that? Twenty seventeen. Twenty sixteen. Yeah. Start of twenty sixteen. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, for me, yeah, Wrestle Kingdom Nine was the first time I was made aware of Nakamura, and yeah, like, like you guys mentioned, yeah, like the entrance, the, the energy, the aura, the facial expressions, his movement, his mannerisms. Like, there's just nobody that can, will be able to emulate him. I mean, if I feel like if if a wrestler was like, I want to be like Nakamura and try to do what he do, you could tell like they would be just trying way too hard and it wouldn't come off natural. He's um, a very special talent, you know, unique charisma, unique mannerisms, very strong style. Obviously, King of Strong Style, you know, with that kind of shoot MMA mixed in with some flashy stuff, a little bit of Lucha Libre from his time in Mexico. Just a really, you know, well-rounded performer. Um, and I, I love watching his matches and going back and um, just seeing a lot of the great stuff he did in New Japan. Yeah, and, and I think with the styling of Nakamura, one thing I love is just the various influences that he does have. Like you mentioned, Jeremy, from, from a um, charisma standpoint, you know, he's mentioned so many times how Freddie Mercury and Michael Jackson are like the inspirations for his character. Uh, but then when it comes to the actual wrestling, it's like, he's got background, like literally a lot of people don't realize like he's a multiple time champion, both on the world and national level in amateur wrestling. Um, trained in MMA, had a pretty promising career during the Inokiism days. I think he went like three, one and one or like four, one and one. Um, he studied like Goju Ryu karate, kung fu, um, and like Bruce Lee is his other like 
major influence going into wrestling. So it's kind of interesting. A lot of wrestlers, you know, when you talk to them, especially in Japan, like who are your influence? They'll be like Kijimuto, Shinashimoto, Inoki, Kawada, Four Pillars, stuff like that. And he's like, uh, I like Freddie Mercury. <laughs> 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 so it's just uh it's it, it's it's such a strange combination uh you know of entertainment and, and vicious martial arts which i love <laughs> yeah the other thing i would say is in the ring just so silky smooth in all mm. his movements like everything flows together so well everything is just so clean and smooth um when he does it obviously hard hitting um, you know, he's the king of strong style for a reason, but my overall impression of him in the ring is just everything flows and chains together in such a beautiful way. Um, and it's, yeah, I think, as you said, Jeremy, if, if another wrestler tried to do it, it's like, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be the same because they wouldn't have the same like charisma and they wouldn't, he's unique, um, in the way he does things. And it's, yeah, he's a very special talent. Yeah. Um, so on this episode, we're going to be mainly focusing on the IC title reigns of Nakamura. But before we kind of get to that, um, I think it would be a, little, a good idea to kind of just give a brief summary on how we got from the super rookie to the king of strong style. So, Josh, kind of, can you tell us like the transition there of how Nakamura kind of more of like a shoot style wrestler kind of transitions into this? you know, King of Strong style, Freddie Mercury, Michael Jackson type of character. Yeah, so, um, and this isn't going to be a perfect summary or, or anything of that nature, so I, I'm just going to kind of give you guys bullet points. Might not even be in perfect, uh, you know, orderly timeline or anything like that, so uh, you super pro nerds out there, <laughs> don't <laughs> Don't try to call me out on this stuff. But, uh, you know, Nakamura starts with the dojo in, like, 2002. We kind of discussed his amateur background and everything like that. And, um, you know, Inoki saw him as being a future ace of the company, someone that he could uh, make be, like, the new Inoki, like, the new champion of the company who could defend against actual shoot fighters, kind of in the vein of, like, a Hashimoto or an Ogawa and that's kind of what gave him the edge over, say, other up-and-comers like Shibata and um, Tanahashi, things like that. And in the dojo, they said he was just phenomenal. Like, his timing, his pace, his skill, his ability, his creativeness. And um, that they kind of gave him the nickname of Super Rookie. And so, like, when he made his debut, like, he was maybe in his first or second match, I can't remember, he was already wearing full gear, like full tights, uh, with designs. And like, they didn't really give him too much of the young boy treatment, which people were like, what the heck <laughs> we're talking, we're not talking like first or second match in new Japan. We're talking first or second match ever, you know? Uh, so it, it's really crazy. And 15 months into his career, he wins the IWGP heavyweight championship. Um, he beats Tenzon for it and he goes on, during this first phase of his career to, to win the title two more times. Um, and during that period, the, the guy that we're going to be discussing with the showmanship, the pageantry, um, the facial expressions, you know, just everything that people kind of associate with Nakamura, 
he was nothing like that. Like he was an ass kicker. He was very straight laced, very traditional Japanese strong style type of wrestler. Um, and he was good. He was really good, but it was hard. A, the company was on uh, their down period that we've talked about. So the business was not at the heights it could be. Plus, um, the way they pushed him didn't give the company a lot of reasons to, or the fans to kind of attach to him. Like, there was no story arc to kind of really hold on to, kind of similar to how people reacted when Paige sort of first showed up. You know, uh, she came in and won the title like night one, and then where do you go from there? That's kind of the same thing they did to Nakamura. It was sort of hard for people to kind of accept this young upstart who sort of won the title very quickly in short order. But, you know, he wasn't like a Goldberg phenom coming in and fucking everybody up. So it was, you know, people kind of saw him as maybe even being undeserving at the time. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, during this period, he had a, a, a tag team with uh, Hiroshi Tanahashi. They won the IWGP tag team titles together. Um, before they would eventually break up and start their major feud that sort of defined the early phase of their career. And they sort of saw each other as grand rivals. Well, actually, that's not true. Tanahashi saw Nakamura as his grand rival. Um, Nakamura always saw Tanahashi as a thorn in his side that he couldn't rid himself of and never considered themselves to be on the same level. Always considered Tanahashi to kind of be like this pest. (laughs) (laughs) When in reality, they were each other's generational rivals, similar to like a Cena and uh, Randy Orton sort of situation. But, um, you know, through this period, there's a lot of starts and stops. Um, uh, or, uh, Nakamura would go on two learning excursions, uh, one to the U.S., one to Mexico. Um, he would also be fighting a lot in mixed martial arts. So his training for MMA kept him out of the ring for long stretches of time uh, a lot of injuries were incurred during that period there was a lot of infamous shoot and worked angles uh involving him and some of the early um mma practitioners like ogawa and fujita um him and inoki even had he at one point inoki like called fujita to like shoot on him uh during a match and after the whole scuffle he came in and like beat like inoki slapped and beat up um, Nakamura for to shame him publicly, like <laughs> <laughs> shit was kind of wild. <laughs> so, but by the time um, Nakamura gets done with his like third learning ex- or his second learning excursion, um, he comes back new new attitude, new attire, and he kind of slowly starts to morph into the guy that we see now. Like little elements start getting implemented. Um, and this is around the time that he was part of New Japan Black Stable. And when Chono left Black, um, Black was disbanded. All the members that were still in it became Rise. And then and with the Rise storyline, with Great Bash Heel kind of turning on, on um, Makabe, the Great Bash Heel kind of joined with Rise and they formed Chaos. And that kind of gave Rise to the... Uh, to the Nakamura that we know today. And, you know, uh, uh, but by the time we're getting to 2012, all of this has happened. He's gone through his super rookie phases. He's already had his three IWGP title reigns. He's not going to have another one for the rest of his career, which is 
shocking because he's going to become a bigger star and never actually regain the belt. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, you know, he's going to be the leader of the most prolific heel uh, team, or at least one of them in the company. And um, we slowly start to see him become the Nakamura that people like kind of know and, you know, like are familiar with today. And it wasn't always like that. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. So, you know, we get this transition from, like you mentioned, Super Rookie to the King of Strong Style. And before we jump into uh, his title reigns, I think it'd be good to give a little background on the creation of the IC title. So um, October 3rd, 2010, uh, the American promotion Jersey All Pro, they announced that they had reached an agreement with New Japan to run uh, shows in the U.S. And New Japan officially announced this Invasion Tour uh, 2012 attack on the East Coast Tour on January 4th, 2011, uh, with shows taking place uh, May 13th in Rahway, New Jersey, May 14th in New York City, and May 15th in Philadelphia. Um, and the following day, they added that during the tour that they would introduce this IWGP Intercontinental Championship, and the inaugural champion would be uh, crowned in a tournament. And so in the tournament, we had uh, former WWE star MVP, uh, who had signed with New Japan. All in. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we had uh, this guy named Kazuchika Okada, who had been on excursion with TNA. We had Hide- uh, Hideo Saito. We had um, uh, former IWGP Junior Tag Champion at the time, Tetsuya Naito and Yujiro Takahashi, who were of no limit. We had Tama Tonga, Toriyano, and independent wrestler Dan Math who made his first appearance for New Japan during that tour. Uh, during the tournament, Tamatonga suffered an injury, which took him out, and he was replaced by former TNA and Ring of Honor star Josh Daniels. And then the finals of the tournament happened on May 15th, where MVP defeated Toriyano in the finals of the tournament to become the first-ever IWGP Intercontinental Champion. <laughs> yeah, that, that whole... Um that whole entire bracket kind of plays out the way that some of these lower card tournaments sort of play out. So like, you know, when you see like uh, a title that's maybe less important or maybe a crown, uh, like a tournament crown that's less important, they'll put big names in there and you, you're thinking, Oh my God, we're going to end up with this banging, you know, banger, uh, you know, finals. And then oftentimes those guys get eliminated very quickly under whatever circumstances and then you end up with Toriano versus MVP. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, what? <laughs> I, as for part of this, uh, this project, this preparing for this podcast, I thought I'd just watch this match and it is not new Japan pro wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, this God. is the most WWE stuff you've ever seen. <laughs> And, you know, and we've seen this with New Japan as they've, you know, worked on the Western expansion. They they always feel like, all right, the West is WWE, so we need to get a former WWE guy. When we've seen this in the past when they brought in Billy Gunn to face Tanahashi on the Long Beach shows. You know, they've brought in Cody and Juice Robinson, and they bring in these, like, WWE guys, and they're like, all right, well, People in the West love WWE, so if we use their guys, their former guys, then that's going to help us get business in the West and kind of increase our popularity. And sometimes when they pick these WWE guys, they're not the best. Obviously, with MVP, 
MVP. I loved MVP and during his you know WWE run, but when you think of New Japan, I don't I don't think of Montel Montavious Porter. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know the the other thing to too to keep in mind here is that New Japan had very serious illusions back in 2010, 2011 to go into America. Obviously, we wouldn't see like the culmination of that until much later. But this was their first, you know, foray into the states, and they were planning to expand back then. They were planning to try and grow, and this was going to be the title that was represented abroad and kind of the other touring title in America aside from the IWGP Championship. Uh, in essence, what most people thought the U.S. title would eventually was supposed to be, and I don't even think it became what it was supposed to be. Th- th- this was the first concept of that. So, like, this was their quote unquote U.S. title before there was a U.S. title, right? And you know, and also, I think most fans probably will recognize the white strap title, the white strap with gold plate title, but the original title is actually a black strap, kind of a bronze looking title. The title did not look great. And with MVP as a champion, it was seen very much as a mid-card title. I mean, even the tag titles were probably seen as a, a higher um, kind of goal to get at that point than this IC title. And it wasn't treated seriously at all until we get to Shinsuke Nakamura challenging Hiroki Goto July 22nd, 2012 for the championship where, um, Nakamura would defeat Goto to kick off his first title reign. Yeah, Nakamura um, was very outspokenly, you know, disapproving of the first belt design. Uh, you know, he didn't like that it had bronze plates or the black strap. Uh, he said it looked like a 10 yen coin and saw it as a parody of what the IWGP title actually was. Uh, so, yeah, exactly what you're saying, uh, you know, Jeremy, he completely was disapproving of the look of the actual physical belts, kind of like how people make fun of the uh, the WWE tag team titles, you know, the penny titles they used to have. Now, I guess they're dime titles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, he did. He didn't like it at all. Like he's very public about it. Yeah. So uh, did you, by chance, did you guys happen to watch this first uh, match up here? I know it's not the one that we're reviewing, but did you guys watch this one. Yeah, it's a shame we didn't get to do a, a Goto match actually, because Naka, Nakamura and Goto would end up having a lot of a lot of matches over the um, intercontinental belt. And I don't think this was their best by any stretch, but it was certainly, you know, it, it alludes to. I'm not sure if they had matches before against one another, but this certainly alludes to the sort of amazing, like real banger matches that they would have later on. Um, you know, very hard hitting, very strong style, everything you'd expect from from these two and sort of the story is, I mean, it's very prophetic for what would go on to happen to the intercontinental title. But the story of this match is very much that um, Nakamura is better than Goto, but Goto is going to make Nakamura earn this, earn this win um, and force him to fight for his life to actually get this title, even though Nakamura is obviously and clearly the better person, uh, but the better fighter, not the better person, <laughs> but the, <laughs> the better fighter and the better wrestler. Um, and, and these two would go on to to trade this title back and forth down the line as well. Uh, and this, this is certainly a really great start to Nakamura's title reign. Yeah, I, I completely agree with your analysis there. I also decided to watch this match partly out of just 
sheer curiosity because when you go online and you try to look up reviews, I couldn't find any reviews. I couldn't find any ratings. And I was like, that's interesting. Uh, like, you know, uh, Sam said, these two guys have had some really great matches with one another. In fact, you know, the, the whole thing with Goto and Nakamura is that they came up in the same class. Um, so outside of the ring, they're two of the best friends in the business, you know, in new Japan, um, you know, because, because of their close age and proximity and how many times they've competed against one another. So they always have really great matches. And, you know, I, I was really pleasantly surprised when I watched this, it was at the anniversary show, I think the 40th, but, um, it was really good, honestly. And it was, it was the exact story that Sam mentioned, you know, keep in mind, Nakamura leader of his own stable, three-time former IWGP champion coming into challenge for a belt held by Hiroki Goto, the perennial IWGP challenger slash loser, the, the guy who's <laughs> challenged for the title more times and lost than anyone else in history. So they're clearly at different levels. And um, the, the whole first half of the match is Nakamura just controlling everything and just showing and being cocky and having swagger and beating the shit out of Goto and then Goto turns around, turns the whole thing around, and he starts land blasting him with big combos and getting him in trouble and almost submitting him, almost pinning him on multiple occasions. And then Nakamura finally turns it up and gets him out of there and wins the belt. And uh, it, it's not that again, like Sam said, their best match ever, but I don't think it's their worst by any means. It's pretty good. I would go like. I don't know, three and three quarters, maybe four stars on it. It's pretty, it's good. Yeah, I watched this match also in preparation for this show. And yeah, it's in that four star, yeah, three and a quarter, four star range. And yeah, you guys kind of broke down the story there. And yeah, it's just very interesting to see both of those guys at that time in their career. You know, Goto was still kind of wearing the, you know, that, that the dress kind of pants looking gimmick that he was doing at that time. And <laughs> not a good look. Yeah. Not a good look. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, he was doing the, uh, I believe it's called a Shouten Kai, um, that like that suplex rock bottom thing as his finisher, which he got a great near fall off of it in that match, and the crowd was pretty invested in that match. Some great crowd reactions, but yeah, yeah. very very interesting seeing you know Goto kind of that second part of the match taking it to Nakamura, Nakamura having to be the one to kind of overcome and come back and win the title. Yeah, and going into this match, we you know started off the IWGP title with MVP as the champion. He held it for 148 days and then drops it to after defending the title twice against Yano and his third defense, he defends against Masato Tanaka. Um, a lot of fans probably are not as familiar with Masato Tanaka's work in New Japan, more probably more aware of him from like uh, FMW, Big Japan, you know, the, the uh, independent scene in, in Japan, as well as like obviously his ECW runs, which are very prolific. But man, he was just so awesome. I, I love his work in New Japan, and um, I think he's probably the first guy that kind of brought a measure of respect to the title. But even even then, like some of these matches, you look him and Hanma, him and MVP, him and Goto. Um, I don't think they probably trended as high as they could or should have for the time. And Goto takes the title off of him at the end of 2012, and. You know, then we get into the Goto, uh, you know, and Nakamura phase. And, you know, you're looking at MVP, Tanaka, Goto, you know, great wrestlers, but 
not top stars, not world beaters. These are seen as lower mid-card uh, talents in the company. Goto is probably the highest level guy that had held the belt to this point, and he wasn't really setting the world on fire with his title reign prior to Nakamura lifting the title off of him. So you, you've got a belt that's like, it's not even like co-headlining or even third from the top or sometimes even fourth from the top. We're talking about like something that's lower than the, like you said, it's probably on the same level or even lower than the tag titles. It's definitely lower Never than the IWGP. Huh? <laughs> Never three man. Right, yeah. At, at that at that point, it's probably seen like the Never three man or maybe even like how the U.S. title is kind of viewed nowadays. Yeah. So uh, hey, that's on my boy Mox. You you quiet down about that. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I, I'll tell you what. Since Mox has held the title, does anyone even like kind of remember that he's the champion? Like, <laughs> they, they haven't wrestled since like. February. <laughs> I, I think, but uh, it's not just. It's not just him, too. It's like He's a double champ. He's a champ champ. <laughs> I, I, I don't think that title's mattered since Kenny Omega really dropped it. I think uh, Tony Khan should allow Mox to walk out on Dynamite with the U.S. title just to remind fans, let them know. <laughs> let them know who the, who the champ champ is. That yes. one on each shoulder. Yes. <laughs> not only am I the champion of the world, I'm also the U.S. champion. <laughs> the U.S. champion of Japan. <laughs> you see, what, what Gato should, should have done is he should allow AEW to have Mox defend the U.S. title. That way that belt actually still has some defenses building up this year while they're on hiatus. Now they'll pull a double cross and Alan Angels will end up the champions. <laughs> <laughs> then we have to book this Zack Sabre, Alan Angles feud. I don't know. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so uh, Nakamura defeats Goto here, becomes IC champ. Then in August of that year, August 26, he would go to the U.S. to make his first offense defeating uh, Oliver John at Sacramento Wrestling Federation in California. Then he comes back to Japan. Where, where, did you did you gentlemen catch this match? I did not watch this one. In, in preparation for this show? <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know who Oliver John is. <laughs> really? I heard he wrestled John Juris back in the day and tapped out to the jurisdiction. So I don't know. <laughs> uh. Yeah, Jujurus don't remember who that jobber was. Yeah, I, I usually don't remember the guys that I defeat. <laughs> uh, so he comes back to Japan October 8th, King of Pro Wrestling. He once again uh, faces Goto, uh, Goto's rematch here. He defeats Goto in that matchup, keeps the title. Then we go on the next month. And and one thing, I think by this point, and I don't know for certain, but I think by this point he's already introduced the new title. Um, so I, he definitely introduced it very, very quickly into his reign. And, um, he was the one who actually designed, uh, everything about it. So he designed the white strap. We all kind of know Nakamura is a little bit of a mark for, uh, uh, North American culture and everything. And clearly like had aspirations for WWE. So I think he might've taken some of that inspiration from like the Shawn Michaels intercontinental, uh, type <laughs> belt. Definitely. but he had set. He said that he wanted gold plates to represent that it was an important belt and then a white strap to indicate that this title for the first time ever had a symbolic clean slate for its holder and for the holder to define what that title meant to the company as opposed to, you know, the Godos and the Tanakas and the MVPs of the past. (laughs) 
Yeah, and coming into Power Struggle, the belt was definitely there. So I, I watched this one um, as part of just catching up with this project. for um, So Power Struggle of that year, Nakamura defended against Machine Gun Carl Anderson in a pretty good matchup. And yeah, at this point, he, he had the white strap coming into this match. And then from there, he goes on to the Tokyo Dome, January 4th, 2013, Wrestle Kingdom 7, to face off against Sakuraba. And this is one of the matches that was selected. Josh, this was your selection for us to watch. So let's talk about this uh, Nakamura versus Sakuraba match. <laughs> for, for better or for worse, this was my selection. <laughs> <laughs> so, Sam, uh, kick it off. What, what were your thoughts on this matchup? I, to, to kick things off, I think that if this was almost uh, an indication of what Nakamura had done for the IC title to this point, you know, like, as we said, it was like very much a discarded title that no one really cared about. Um, and then when Nakamura takes over it, he's slowly getting bigger and bigger um, matches against, you know, whoever that fellow was that we talked about. And I've already forgotten the name of then a rematch against Goto, you know, then a match against Carl Anderson. And then this is a really f- a feature match because Sakuraba is a big name. Um, Josh should probably be able to go into more depth of who Sakuraba is, um, but I am a, I'm a bit of an MMA fan as well, and I know that particularly in Japan, he has a very big history and a very storied history, um, particularly being the Gracie Hunter, um, the guy who was like the one guy that was able to get one up on the Gracie family in you know, the, the late 90s, early noughties, MMA, kind of like the Wild West days of that, and was quite infamous um, for that. And suddenly this title that was once, you know, discarded, no one really cared about, um, it's in a featured position on a, a guy who's a former IWGP champion um, against, you know, uh, a guy who's got a storied history and is very is very well known in Japan at the biggest show of the year. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and you did a great job kind of summing up some of those uh, bullet points there, uh, Sam. Um, you know, Sakuraba was clearly a... Um, <clears throat> he's one of the, the greatest uh, Japanese sports legends and sports figures, you know, not just in MMA, but just in Japanese culture. Um, you know, the whole idea... MMA had been around, like, Satoru Sayama kind of started MMA. Uh, he doesn't really get the credit for that, but he really started MMA in like uh, like 89, 1990. And it got, you know, popularized with rings and popularized with Pancrase in like the mid-90s. But it wasn't until Pride came around and K1 came around that that style of fighting really blew up. And the whole idea of it was very similar to what Ricky Dozen was supposed to have been for pro wrestling. The idea that you bring in the best foreigners in the world and show Japan's fighting supremacy, their fighting spirit to defeat them. And they, they put Nobuhiko Takada up against Hicks and Gracie, and Takada got destroyed twice because <laughs> he, he wasn't a real fighter. And he was fighting the, the greatest MMA fighter in history up to that point uh, in major, you know, huge sellout, uh, you know, matches. And it wasn't until... Sakuraba came around that they finally had a champion who could defeat all comers. I mean, I, I can't, I can't give you a list, but it's a who's who of guys that he beat, you know, um, God, Kevin Randleman, Rampage Jackson, uh, Mark Coleman, and, 
uh, like you mentioned, all the Gracies, and that's kind of that feud is the feud that kind of defined him. Like he he beat Hoist Gracie, he beat Hoyler Gracie, he beat Enzo Gracie, like, and he was off in them. And keep in mind, this was a family who like had gone undefeated and you know mixed fighting for like 50, 60 years. They kind of invented it in in uh, Brazil. So he was just a legend. And not only was he a legend, but uh, Sakuraba had won uh, the, the first and only like heavyweight, uh, MMA or UFC tournament when UFC was still tournaments, they went to, they had UFC Japan and he won the tournament and he tapped out, uh, Silverio Conan or Conan Silverio, who was a Brazilian jiu-jitsu heavyweight black belt. He was a world champion and, uh, Sakuraba tapped him out in the finals of the tournament. And Sakuraba actually lied to get in the tournament because he wasn't a heavyweight. You had to be over 200 pounds. He was like 160, 170 pounds. And he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm like 210. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, Silverio that he tapped out was like 230, 240. He was ripped. And, uh, when, when this happened, Sakuraba was still wrestling in professional wrestling. He's a professional wrestler. He came up under Takata, came through the UWFI, wrestled in New Japan. Uh, he was wrestling for Kingdoms at the time. And when he won the tournament, he stood up in front of everybody. He's like, I just wanted to prove that, indeed, pro wrestling is strong. <laughs> <laughs> and that was like his his claim to fame. But by, by the time he wrestles um, Nakamura here, you know, we kind of touched base last week that Sakuraba had returned to the company in 2012 and was in a tag team with Shibata. So he was kind of a freelancer. And um, his body, he's old. His body's broken down. He's not used to wrestling the house style of, of New Japan. He's a shoot-style wrestler. And he can't do a great many things that he used to do. So in essence, this to me is almost Japan's version of Hogan versus Rock. You've got the most charismatic one of the top drawing stars, one of the biggest stars in the company in Rock slash Nakamura. And then you have the aging hero who the crowd is still behind, they still believe in, but can't do many of the things that they did before. But they'll get behind him in a showdown with this generational star that you never thought these two guys would ever face one another, especially not on a stage like Wrestle Kingdom and the Tokyo Dome. So, like, the even if the match doesn't deliver in certain respects, a lot of it is who it is, the anticipation of it, the stage that it's happening on. It, it is their Hogan Rock. Nice. So um, let's uh, break down the match a little bit. So, Sam, what are your thoughts about this matchup? So my thoughts in this one, I think Josh put it pretty well there with – you know, Sakuraba is showing his age, but at the same time, he's still a legit MMA fighter. And so when, particularly once they get on the ground, he is as smooth and as silky as ever. Um, and, and is, makes this match look really, really good. I don't normally like, um, sort of like hybrid MMA pro wrestling fights. Um, because most of the time I'm an MMA fan. If I want to watch MMA, I'll actually watch MMA. Most pro wrestling matches that try and look like MMA look really incredibly sloppy, but this didn't. And it's because they've got two guys who are literally, who are in there. They know how to do this. They could do this for real if they wanted to. And they're like skirting the line of that. And the story for me in this match, the way that this match sort of broke down was that Nakamura had the edge when it was standing up and in kickboxing and with his strikes and particularly with his knee strikes. Um, but 
Sakuraba, as soon as it got to the ground, Sakuraba would take over um, with his triangles, with his arm bars, and particularly with his Kimura. Um, and he got in mounted a number of times and sort of pounded Nakamura down um, from the mount position. Uh, it, it, yeah, this it, is very hard hitting. Like, this is. I'm, this is strong. Like this is what strong style is, and this is where Nakamura is showing why he is the king of strong style. Yeah, I, I'm in complete agreement. Uh, I think that a lot of what made this match just so wonderful. A, it's not a long match, you know. So mm. they didn't try to go out there and have a 20, 30 minute epic. I think they go like 12 minutes. Yeah, it's max. pretty short. Yeah. Um. They also did their best to hide Sakuraba's deficiencies. They, you know, hid the negatives and, and accentuated the positives. So what he still could do, and even to this day, Sakuraba's still great at grappling. You know, when it comes to smooth transitions, locking and holds, he can still go with the best of them. When it comes to, you know, strikes and, you know, you know, the, the, the standing grappling stuff in the clinch, like that's not stuff he's going to be able to do as much. And then even just traditional pro wrestling, I'm, I, he's not really at that level any longer. So they, they didn't focus on that. They told a story where Nakamura is the better striker. I would assume probably that's probably still the case. Like even in a real fight, I think that that would be probably the situation. And then on the ground, He's nowhere near the level of Sakuraba. So Sakuraba kind of has this ace in his hand that he can kind of play up on on Nakamura. And what I love about Nakamura's performance here is that he's able to really lean into his ability to sell, to make uh, an aging performer with an aura look like a million bucks when he probably isn't. I mean, I think Sakuraba had three good matches in new Japan over his tenure there for the, his last run. And this is the first really great one. And people, even though people were kind of anticipating it, I think a lot, there's a lot of people that also were doubting their ability to put on a great match. And it, it way over delivered. This is probably the best match that they could have possibly had between these two. And Nakamura is just so great at selling the ground and pound selling his desperation to get out of, uh, positions that Nakamura that uh, Sakuraba gets him in. Um, every single time there's a near uh, submission hold, he's like fighting desperately uh, to get to the ropes. And this isn't really the type of Nakamura that you'd been seeing throughout this title run. You know, he'd been so dominant, and then you see this guy who's just kind of sunning him down there and being big brother, um, and he's fighting for his life. And then the one part of the match that's very infamous is when you think that. Nakamura has the upper hand. They're back on their feet and he looks like he's going to go for a strike. And then he tries to switch it up and go for a takedown and, and change up the game plan. And Sakuraba throws the big knee strike and just catches him in the yes, jaw yes. and lays him out. And, um, Freaking hot. And, he, and here's the thing. Uh, he had done that in, in uh, specifically the matches that he had had previously with um, Takayama. He, that was the first time he did this spot. So it's not like he had never, ever done this spot in the past. I mean, he had. But um, people were saying that he was legit knocked out off that. Um, I don't know if if he was or not, to be honest with you. I rewatched it a few times to, to see. The report has always been that he was. But 
because I'm rewatching it and I can usually spot a shoot from a work, I don't know. I literally don't know. And I think that just tells you how good the guy is at, at selling. Like, I don't know if, if, if he got knocked loopy and was out for a second or if he was just selling. I love in this match how at the start they sort of, in particular Nakamura, you can see like they try and respect one another a little bit and grapple and they're sort of playing around. And then once Sakuraba, they go to the ground and Sakuraba passes Naka's guard, um, Mm -hmm. gets inside control, I think. They then get up, go into the corner and Nakamura gives him a slap and then it's like, okay, buddy, it's on. And they just start (laughs) slapping the shit out of each other palm strikes and they're dodging and they're like it looks it looks like they're teeing off on one another and from that point onwards you get that's when you get into this mode and yeah it peaks when you hit that when sakuraba hits that bloody hard knee um and yeah i i I didn't think he was knocked out um he hit him with his like upper thigh in the replays i mean you could still knock someone out with that um but it wasn't like a flush knee strike so i think they were still like working it but it was still bloody hard like you could see that the impact was real well yeah, um, his, and you know nakamura's got blood in his mouth yeah it's it's such a such a visceral shot like visceral um shot when he gets up and he's like gritting with blood in his mouth um yeah great great little moment there yeah and, and- I think the last thing, and I'll throw it to you, Jeremy, the, the last thing, one reason why I picked this match, I think, A, because it's the first time we really see someone headline with this title at Wrestle Kingdom in a, in a big, high profile. This is like the real elevation of the belt. But not only that, from a stylistic standpoint, I don't think there's any other match that we could have chosen that kind of highlights this style of wrestling that Nakamura w- was capable of doing. Um you know, I know that the shoot stuff is not for everyone, but this is a, a pretty high-level match. And um, it, it showcases just a side of him that's very, very different from anything else that we would have seen uh, throughout his entire, you know, various title reigns. And and it's and I think it's a little underappreciated, underloved. Like, people remember the other big Wrestle Kingdom matches. They kind of forget about the Sakuraba one, which was – had a big um, – effect on the bottom line overall like this was a drawing match and going forward it would be uh, just another building block and stepping stone to what we call like the glory days or the golden age of new japan you know here here in the modern era right this match was built as you know double double main event you know one of the double main events for the evening so definitely we're seeing that elevation of the ic title now in a vacuum, out of the three matches we watched, this one, I will admit, this one was my least favorite. If you're just, if we're just talking about in-ring action, just the in-ring match. But when you take into um, the context of who Sakuraba was, kind of the background, the style of the match, um, that, that, that elevates the match and makes this match more important. And you got to come in realizing, like, you're not. This match is not like an, an epic Nakamura match. This is a 12-minute shoot-style match. Josh summed it up perfectly of this Rock Hogan-style matchup. I mean, the crowd reactions through this match were great. Um, like you guys mentioned, Nakamura's selling was incredible in this matchup. And, yeah, just making it look like he was dead off of that um, impact knee there. And 
in the, that moment you mentioned, Sam, where um, the slap in the corner, and then from there, like, all hell breaks loose. And then, yeah, I absolutely love that part of the match. And, yeah, it was a very, um, you know, heavy-hitting MMA-style matchup, a lot of great transitions. And like you mentioned, Sam, there are a lot of people who will try and do, like, this shoot-style you know, MMA pro wrestling match, it just doesn't work out as well because maybe they do have some background, but they're not clearly as skilled as guys like Sakuraba and Nakamura. And so you can tell it comes off way more uh, work-looking, more fake-looking than these two guys with great kind of shooting backgrounds and able to, like you mentioned, kind of flirt that line of like, all right, are they really shooting on each other or are they working? And so that was a great aspect of the match. And, a lot of heavy strikes, great suplexes, um, working to the finish there um, of Nakamura the, hitting with the uh, those two Bamayes. Those two Bamayes are fucking killer. <laughs> like, yeah. like we see some really great Bamayes in this uh, series we're doing, but those ones he fucking laid them in hard, and they were like desperation Bamayes too because of how precarious the situation was for him. So he was like at a point where he's like, I got to get rid of this guy. I got to get him out of here. And he, he hits him real quick with him and then pins him. And Sakuraba actually, the, the one dick thing he did in this match was like, he kind of kicked out at 3.1. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, like he's an old school carny, like as great of a sportsman <laughs> as he is, he's still going to like kind of keep his heat and he tries to kick out at 3.1 <laughs> a la Hogan warrior. And uh, it's like, oh, you, you, you barely got me with those two fucking knees to the skull. <laughs> uh, if I had one more second, I would have gotten out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, so overall, what are you Did you guys uh, rate this match? Yeah, I think it's a divisive match. You know, Dave Meltzer at the time gave it four and a half. He loved it. You go online, you look at cage match. They're like 8.59. I don't, so that's basically four and a quarter, essentially. I would go a smooth four. I I could see someone going lower, depending on your tastes, because this isn't a style for everybody. Um, And I could see some people that love it going higher. I think it's going to be one of those matches that is not, you have it it doesn't have a universally approved like rating. It kind of depends on your perception. I would go four on the match and I really like the match a lot. I could even go four and a quarter as high as that. I find it. I find this one hard to, hard to rate. I, to, to give you guys a little bit of insight. I generally don't like to give quarter stars just because I, in my own mind, I can't really keep up with what like a quarter star actually means for myself. So just when I do things, I'm looking at halves and I couldn't really justify doing this four and a half. But then when I think within like the, you know, I said like as far as MMA pro wrestling matches go, this is probably the best one I've ever seen. And so, I mean, that would have to be five star if I was just going to give it on based on the genre. Apart from that, I'd have to just give, I'd agree with Josh. I gave it a clean four. Uh, I give uh, matches an extra quarter star when someone bleeds, and if they both bleed, <laughs> that's a half star. <laughs> Automatically. Uh, so yeah, I, I was a little, bit, I was a low man here. I went three and a half here, which for a twelve minute match, I think three and a half is a, a pretty decent rating um, time wise. So I don't know, but yeah, again, like Josh was saying, this match it all depends on your taste, and I've seen yeah ratings all over the board for this match. 
but definitely it's definitely worth a watch though. Hundred percent. It's not a short. It's not a long one either, which is good. Yeah. <laughs> so then from there, uh, Nakamura goes on to. Um, he takes part in the Fantastic Mania 2013 tour, which you guys know, you know, it's the New Japan CMLL co-promoted shows that they do um, after Wrestle Kingdom. And so in the main event on the second night, Nakamura made his fifth uh, successful defense against La Sombra, better known to Western fans now as Andrade. Then moving on from there, and that, and that match kind of kickstarts. We're going to see here these guys kind of have a rivalry kind of going forward here, and that kind of kickstarts the rivalry there during that Fantastic Mania tour. Then from there, in early 2013, uh, Nakamura gets involved in the chaos rivalry against Suzuki Goon. So mm. on March 3rd, at the 41st anniversary <clears throat> event, Nakamura defeats Lance Archer in the sixth t- uh, title offense. Then moving on to April 5th, uh, Nakamura and Ishii, they unsuccessfully challenge Killer Elite Squad, Archer, and Dayboy Smith. For the championships, keeping this rivalry going. And then at Invasion Attack, Nakamura defends against Davey Boy Smith Jr., um, in which also he avenged a loss in the New Japan Cup. Think think about how badass Nakamura is. Like, in his uh, later career with Chaos, his pin eater was Ishii. <laughs> 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 of all the guys he, he could have picked, like, that's... Like Ishii is his Yoshihashi. Like that just tells you about Nakamura. <laughs> um, but I'll just I, jump in. On, I, sorry, you go. I was gonna say. Well, I was gonna introduce you. I was gonna say I watched this IWGP match with uh, David Boy Smith Jr. But I know, Sir Sam, you had some thoughts on it. Yeah, I nearly picked these. Like I was, you know, going through these matches. Um, I really enjoy this match and it's, I think, you know, it's not as good as some of the other ones that, that are on here and that we've picked, but just purely for the selling of how Naka, like this is a tour de force for Nakamura, this match against Lance Archer and Davy Boy, you know, these guys aren't, these guys are really good. Um, you know, they're really high level, but they're not the greatest pro wrestlers in the world. They're not the absolute elite pro wrestlers in the world, but Nakamura makes both of these guys look like absolute beasts. And it's largely because of his selling, his combination of selling, and because he looks so legit with his strikes, and his strikes look so crisp, and these guys can shrug them off. They look fantastic. And the reason I like these matches a lot was just because they really just showed Nakamura's skill. Um against and making these big guys look amazing and look like complete monsters because they can take this guy's offense that looks devastating uh, and make this guy who can, you know, who's so tough scream in agony and, and have to fight for his life to get the win. Yeah. I think the, um, I, I watched this match too. Um, I won't go in depth with it or anything of that nature, but I thought it was very good. I think it's one of the underrated mm. Davy Boy Smith, Shinsuke Nakamura matches. A lot, I feel like a lot of people don't know about it, honestly. But uh, the interesting there, thing there, and they did a good job with this, when they were building up title defenses, oftentimes these guys would get either tag team or tournament victories over Nakamura to establish their ability to beat him. And that's what they did with David Boy Smith uh, during the New Japan Cup. He had beaten him in one of the rounds, knocked Nakamura out, setting up a de facto title defense, and, you know, um, 
kind of creates that that logical doubt there that maybe Dave Boy Smith's in line for a uh, you know a title push. Plus, him and Archer were the t- IWGP Tag Team Champions at the time and were pretty dominant. So, uh, kind of did favors for both guys on both ends. Um, and yeah, I thought I thought Nakamura. You know, you look at some of the names that are on the list here, and he's clearly wrestling a lot of not top stars in the company, but like upper mid-card guys that he's doing a great job elevating guys like Goto, Carl Anderson, Davey Boy Smith, that sort of thing. So, yeah. yeah. When you have a really, for, for a really good run, you have to have those sorts of matches where, you know, you're not against someone who is on necessarily the same level. And all of the really great runs have these sorts of matches in it where, you know, you probably didn't think Nakamura was actually going to win, actually going to lose, but for a moment there you thought maybe. And, you know, they're still really great matches and Nakamura makes these guys look great. And I'll say, you know, Dave Boy Smith Jr., he's obviously not the best wrestler in the world, but I do think at times he can be very underrated. And mm. I, I think when you put him in there with the right guy like a Nakamura who can sell for him and make him look like an absolute monster, his matches come off a lot better. And so, yeah, I definitely think, you know, there poss- possibly could have been a drop ball there for more of a, a singles uh, Dave Boy Smith Jr. run uh, facing off maybe some smaller, better seller guys. But, yeah, this was a great matchup here. He's also someone that can uh, fit in like a glove with some of the shoot stylings that uh, Nakamura, especially in the the early goings. If you notice, a lot of times Nakamura in his matches, he doesn't really lock up with guys. He he's tending more to go to a ground based grappling offense. And uh, a lot of people know this. David Boy Smith is like a, a Naga Nogi champion current day. Uh, he's he's been training with Josh Barnett and catch wrestling for years. So he's one of the few guys that at the time could really stand toe to toe with this guy in that sort of, you know, wrestling style. And it, and it showed in the match it was really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Davey boy had a great, uh, great match at blood sport with killer cross. Oh, Carrie, I love that. Uh, Carry and cross really good match. Yeah, I was, I was there. It was really oh, awesome. Eight. That was one of, <laughs> it makes one of, me jealous. <laughs> honestly, like, and people think this is hyperbole. I thought that match, or I thought that show overall was better. Just slightly, I thought it was better than the TakeOver show in New York that year. That's how good the show was. It was incredible. I, I'd, I'd agree with that, honestly. Uh, yeah, it, and that's... Uh, people <laughs> who didn't see it will think that's ridiculous sounding, but when you watch it top to bottom, it's it's one of the best shows I've ever been to. Maybe yeah. the best. Yeah, I've seen some, I haven't seen the full show, but I saw some of the matches. But yeah, it, it, I don't know. You were there live. Uh, I forgot where we were during that, during that Bloodsport show, but... Yeah, that takeover experience was awesome too. But yeah, a great great WrestleMania weekend. I think you guys went to. Oh yeah, we went. We met up with uh, Stardom. Ta- no, I think wasn't that where we met up with uh, Tamatonga? To uh, yeah, yeah, you guys were, you guys were hanging out with Bad Boy getting drinks, and I was on a train to Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, after the Day Boy Smith match, the the rivalry with Suzuki Gun continues with their newest member, Shelton. X Benjamin, <laughs> ain't no stopping I think him someone now. Forgot to t- someone forgot to tell this man that the X is supposed to replace the name. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, build as uh, Invader X, uh, and then putting the X in the middle there, telling X Benjamin. So uh, Nakamura would fall to Benjamin here, 
And, uh, you know, Shelton Benjamin was was one of my favorite guys in WWE during the mid-2000s. Obviously, there's, there's that Shawn Michaels match from the Gold Rush tournament with the, inf- you know, the infamous gif of him getting uh, springboard super kicked. And, you know, there was a lot of promise in Benjamin, but as we see him kind of transition here to New Japan, he's one of the WWE guys that just really didn't adapt well to New Japan style. Would you guys agree? Somewhat. I think that he wasn't given... He was given some opportunities, but not a ton. You know, he was he was a Suzuki Goon guy, so he wrestled a lot of um, multi-man matches. And then I don't think he always capitalized on the opportunities given to him when he wrestled those singles matches. Um, I do think that the Nakamura matches, because there's a, a couple of them, there's some of his better work in New Japan as a singles, but they're not blow away. They're probably like three and a half, three and a quarter. Uh, I don't think they're high end for Nakamura style defenses, to be honest, for whatever reason. Yeah, for me, Shelton Benjamin is just a prime example of how in pro wrestling you need to be more than just like really athletic because he's obviously like a super athletic guy, um, you know, and could do just about anything in the ring or as much as anyone else could. Um, but, you know, I don't think anyone ever really cared that much about him as a, as a wrestler or a character. And he just, I did. <laughs> oh, okay. Stand correct. I, I was invested in that Triple H storyline. I was invested in the Triple H when when the Triple H and the Shawn Michaels stuff was going on. That Triple H storyline, I was invested. He beat um, Triple H like four weeks in a row on Raw. And and when he, and when he was doing his first like intercontinental run, I was invested. It subsided because they didn't know what to do with him after a while. But in the beginning, oh yeah, I think I think I remember a lot of people being invested early on. Okay, I stand, I stand corrected, but <laughs> no one cared about him. But I still think, uh, I still, I still think he he just never showed any sort of character that would give him something more to build on, other than you know this guy is an athletics freak um, who can do lots of cool stuff. Yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. They 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 did the segment where he looked at the camera real weird and like kind of rolled his <laughs> eyes around a lot. Yeah, and then he was that was gold cool. standard, right? That was <laughs> yeah. I liked when they introduced his mom. <laughs> yeah, man, Shelton definitely could have benefited from a manager, and it was unfortunately, you know, Vince is in this, you know, I hate manager phase. But if you could have stick somebody, like a manager, with him who could really talk, I think that would have helped him a lot. In his run in, in WWE, well, stick well, with the, like the, a really charismatic tag team partner like uh, Chad Gable or oh, Brock Lesnar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll stick um, with Brock Lesnar, and he just beats everyone. <laughs> now, since we're, since we're on the uh, subject here, this is the eighth and final successful defense for Nakamura in his first title reign. And not only that, it is a record-setting title defense because after this, no champion in the history of this title's, uh, you know, history ever comes close to defending this many times successfully. Uh, And in New Japan, I mean, eight title defenses of any title is insane. You know, that's an extremely large number of title defenses for anybody and I think it's one of those records that's going to uh, probably stand up until they really, really, really decide to go with someone again because 
313 days, eight tile defenses. That's a big deal. It's a, it's a huge legacy that he kind of carved out right from the get-go when it comes to him holding this title. Yeah, definitely. You know, you, you talk about elevation of a tile. This is how you do it. You, you put it on a star, and you have, you have him run with it, have him have great matches, great defenses, and have a long, um, credible title reign. Um, so after the Shelton X Benjamin match, he goes back to Mexico, CMLL, and does a little tour there. Uh, his first matchup, he's, he's teaming with El Felino and Negro Casas in a six-man, two out of three false match where um, they lose to Mascara Dorada, Roosh, and Teton. And then he kind of jumps back into the rivalry here with La Sombra and uh, suffers two pinball defeats in six-man tag matches on April 17th and April 24th. What sets up uh, IWGP title match, um, a rematch from Fantastica Mania. The match took place on May 31st and uh, saw Nakamura once again losing to Osambra and he loses the Intercontinental Championship, ending his uh, 313 day title reign, eight successful title defenses. Um, so, any thoughts on kind of the end of this reign here and this, this first title reign before we move on? I guess what I'll say is I watched this match and um, uh, it's actually kind of cool that the match he had with Lissambra at Fantastic Mania that year and then also the CMLL match are the two times that Nakamura used body paint a la Finn Balor. So sometimes people will see the pictures of him with really cool, interesting, like carnage inspired body paint. And people are just wondering where that kind of comes from, but it's those two matches. Uh, And I don't know if we mentioned this. I feel like if you're listening, you probably know, but there might be some people listening and be like, who's La Sombra? We're talking about Andrade Cien Almas from WWE fame, uh, who was a huge, huge star under the mask in Mexico as La Sombra. And um, I did watch this match. I thought it was good. Not great. Uh, but the crowd, I mean, I want to go to Arena Mexico because the crowds are just so hot there. And... Um, Nakamura basically makes a, a a small mistake in a match that he had the upper hand in and was probably on his way to winning in the third fall. Makes a mistake, gets caught. Lasamba rolls. He he has a, a move. I think it might have been his finish at the time. Not totally sure, but he rolls him up, lifts him up off of the roll up, and then comes back and slams him and and finishes the roll up for the pinning combination. And he beats Nakamura. The crowd goes crazy. And I think the deal is in, in Mexico, well, not I think I know in Mexico title championships are not as important, but because of the prestige of the titles in Japan, anytime a, 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 a Japanese or even an American title is won or lost in Mexico, it's a bigger deal. There's higher stakes involved. And to see their national hero in La Sombra, one of their big top rising stars defeat the legendary Nakamura in Arena Mexico in a two out of three falls match clean, that was a big deal for them over there at the time. And also Nakamura wrestled as a heel the whole match, which was also which also added to the emotion of the match. Yeah, just uh, I love when I love how versatile Nakamura can be. And like you mentioned, you know, obviously you would think most guys are like, well, I'm, I'm a bay face, so I'm I'm gonna keep wrestling as a bay face no matter where I go. But knowing like, all right. We're in Mexico. We're in, you know, La Sombra's home court. I'm going to heal it up and get some heat here and really get the crowd invested in this matchup. Yeah, and that's straight after wrestling these matches with Archer and Davy Boy, where he's 
like a really clear face in peril against giants. Um, and, and this whole first reign is just a, it just shows how versatile this guy is. You know, he has that match against Sakuraba, which is, you know, an MMA hybrid kind of hybrid shoot fight almost. He's got these matches against these big guys. He's got like more work rate matches like against Carl Anderson and then a Lucha two out of three falls match against Andrade and, you know, pulls all of them off with style. Yeah. Sam, did you have any uh, final thoughts on, on his first title reign as a whole? Just that, that, you know, it just shows how how much of a star this guy is, that he was able to take this belt that, you know, not many people cared about uh, and make it into something really special with a reign that shows off his own, his own strength um, as well as makes other people look great, you know, makes Sakuraba a legend look like he can still go just as well as he could in the past, making Archer and Davy Boy look like monsters. Um, and, you know, capping it off with a really cool two out of three falls match in Mexico um, against their national champ. Like, you know, this guy who's a national hero. I, I think for me, one thing I, I like about this is that, you know, they don't have plans to make Nakamura the IWGP champion any longer, but they have a whole picture, you know, tied up over there at that current time with guys like, you know, Tanahashi, Okada, shortly AJ Styles, things of that nature. So they kind of have him off to the side. And I'm sure there are people who will criticize that decision, even still today. But he's kind of carved out this niche, this other division for himself, where he can kind of define that division. It reminds me of like when RVD was the TV champion, or like when uh, John Cena was the U.S. champion, you know, and it, it, it's clearly a case of the man making the title, not the other way around. It's not the title making the man. I think the two things we're kind of missing from this title reign, the title reign, you can't criticize it. It's, it's great booking. It's great wrestling. It's top quality and it's legendary. What we haven't really seen him do is a couple things. One, high profile matches with other high profile top guys in New Japan. We haven't really seen that yet. We also haven't seen bitter interpersonal rivalries. We're seeing, you know, um, factional rivalries, you know, uh, sportsman-based rivalries. Thing, but we're not seeing, like, the blood feuds or true hatred-based uh, stuff just yet. So those are the two things kind of missing. But other than that, you have all the recipes of a, of a legendary run. Yeah, just a, a great run here. Great first title reign. So now let's move on to the start of the second reign. So on July 20th of that year, Kazuno Road, Nakamura would face off once again with La Sombra for the IC title. And this is the match that I selected uh, for us to watch, mainly because I always I knew Andrade was La Sombra. I've heard, heard about La Sombra during that time, and I heard he was having good matches, but I, I honestly had never really watched any pretty WWE Andrade and so I love his NXT work and you know his matches with Rey Mysterio on the main roster and he's he's an excellent performer but um I, I wanted to see you know what he was like before and that was the, the main reason why I picked this match up here and uh, it was just great seeing him kind of without the the WWE restraints on on his moveset on his character to see what this guy can fully do here Sam, what were your thoughts on this matchup? 
I really enjoyed this match. I'm pretty much in the same boat as you. I'd never really watched any La Sombra matches um, from, you know, Andrade matches before his time when he was La Sombra. And I've only heard good things about it. I've got a, I think in my YouTube playlist, I've got his, um, his final match where he was demasked. Um, unmasked, and I've that's been in my YouTube play what to watch playlist for you know six months or something. Oh, <laughs> I just you, have, you, haven't you've never watched it? I haven't. No. Yeah, I was I was just telling Jeremy about it yesterday, literally, and I was like singing the praises of how incredible I think that match is with Atlantis. So yeah, you need to you you both need to watch that. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so uh, yeah, what were your thoughts about this matchup, Sam? It was just so incredibly smooth. Um, you know, both guys are just so talented and such good in-ring workers uh and you know even though they're coming from very different places where nakamura obviously has that strong style shoot fighting background and la sombra is a lucha libre uh, wrestler they just blended so well because they're both just so proficient and so technical um and i love how the sort of the story of Shinsuke sort of having answers, being able to answer the technical and high flying stuff that La Sombra was doing with strikes, but then La Sombra being able to counter those strikes into to sort of bring it back to what he wanted, how he wanted to take the match. And, you know, even both fighters ended up having to go into the other person's world where Nakamura did a suicide dive. I don't think I'd ever seen him do a suicide dive before this. And, you know, La Sombra at the end is having some really heavy chop and slap exchanges with Nakamura, um, you know, right up until the end, both there's just so much back and forth in this um, and, and such an interesting clash of styles. Yeah, yeah I think, Oh, go ahead, Jeremy. No, you go ahead. I was just going to say, I think it's there's always a uh, risk when you have two different style wrestlers with uh, such divergent styles for there to be clunkiness or awkwardness, things of that nature. Um, clearly, La Sombra was one of those guys during this uh, phase of the uh, partnership with CMLL and New Japan that they had a lot of faith in. They put their title on him, which is very rare for them to put their uh, title on a Latin fighter. Uh, you know, they did it with, I think, Mascara Dorada and uh, Mystico and, you know, later Dragon Lee, but that was about it. And so for them to put a, a major title on La Sombra like this, it's a pretty big deal. But um, these two guys definitely kind of overcame the awkwardness and put on a great performance. You see, you know, a heavyweight like La Sombra able to wrestle the high flying aerial style so smoothly. But like you mentioned, um, Sam, just, those strikes, those slaps that he hit were sounding off. I mean, you could see the sweat just <laughs> flying yep. off the chest of, of uh, Nakamura. And then at the same time, Nakamura hit that, uh, you know, suicide uh, torneo to the outside, which is kind of uh, a trick he has from Mexico, but he doesn't pull it out of his hat too often. Um, I didn't think that this match kicked into the highest of high gears, but it also didn't disappoint whatsoever it wasn't super long i think it was probably like 15 16 ish minutes if i remember correctly um and there was big moments lasombra coming off of the uh the uh set that was around ring and doing a um you know a, a giant like kota ibushi moonsault off of it there's just a lot he lands he lands really cool on his feet he doesn't just yeah. do the moonsault he lands on his feet like it was nothing <laughs> 
Yeah, uh, he's just Andrade was a, a a different kind of performer, and he still is. But I mean, when he wrestled that true lucha libre style, I mean, he's one of the the all time greatest. And uh, I really enjoyed this match. I thought it was really really well done. The one moment that I did think was kind of lost was he he goes for the same move that he won the belt with, which is the roll up, the lift up, and then the backdrop into the pinning combination. And he tries it again, and this time Nakamura kicks out. And La Sombra starts selling so hard, like, I can't believe that didn't win the match for me. But I don't think the audience maybe was aware or as familiar with the fact that that's how he beat him. So they try to do a big callback spot, and it's a little lost on the uh, the crowd. It's it's hard for, you know, you don't get the reaction that you would expect if it had. Now, if, it, if that had been done in Mexico, I think it'd be different. Um but overall, I love the match. I mean, Jeremy, like you know, like you mentioned, you hadn't seen a lot of La Sombra. I know you enjoyed this match a lot. Like, what were your overall you know thoughts and kind of breakdown? Yeah. So first of all, I, I just love the fact that Nakamura was able to kind of adapt and wrestle that lucha libre style. I know he had done a couple of tours of CMLL, but like Sam was saying, you really don't see him pull his stuff out often in his matches and. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. See Nakamura do a like a corkscrew plancha was kind of crazy and kind of keeping up with Andrade and wrestling Lucha Libre, Lucha Libre style. I really loved that. And then like I was mentioning earlier, like just seeing kind of like La Sombra just kind of without the restraints. I, I marked out how he, he did like a uh, like a springboard spit spinning split like a moonsault at one point in this match for a near fall, which I had never seen him do in WWE, which was awesome. And the moonsault you mentioned, Josh, off that structure, that was a part of the set on ringside was just awesome and landing on his feet. There was a suicide dive that Sombra hit um, in the middle. Oh, of the I love that. Yeah. So good. Literally he shot out of the ring, like a freaking missile and just crashed into Nakamura and they crashed into the guardrails was just awesome. And, and everything Sombra did was just intense. The chops, the elbows, his, his strikes all were all very stiff. And like you meant, you guys mentioned, you just see the sweat flying off and, Nakamura did a great job of selling those as well. I think that's what Lasombra did a little different. Um, is that not only did uh, Nakamura adapt, but he adapted to a more strike-based, heavy kind of realistic offense because he was in Japan, which was also really good to see. One thing I just wanted to call out was at the end, Shinsuke goes for a springboard. I think it's springboard Bomae, and he sort of slips a little bit. I oh, actually yeah. really like that sort of stuff. To me, that just makes it seem more gritty and real when that sort of stuff happens. And you know, they don't they don't let it derail them. They immediately just go into the next bit and you know, with Shinsuke Nakamura with Shinsuke kind of going back up and getting going to the second rope and hitting hitting it again properly. But I just I, I don't know, for me, I really love it when moves don't quite hit the way they're meant to, but they still play it off because it just it seems it adds to the realism for me. Yeah, sometimes, I agree. sometimes yeah, botches can enhance matches. 
Yeah. So obviously, if you're in a real fight, like your movements are all, aren't always going to be crisp. You, you're going to be stumbling. You're trying to just hit your opponent half the time, especially if you're like a novice, like you're swinging or doing whatever. Like everything you do is not going to be perfect and precise. So yeah, the fact that he slipped on this move and was able to kind of recover with like a phenomenal forearm kind of looking thing, and then kind of move on from there was kind of realistic. Yeah, and and I think we'll probably move on here in a second. But one thing I wanted to do is just I want to applaud you guys on uh, your picks here. I think Jeremy, you did a really fantastic job uh, picking this match. And what I mean by that is every week on the show, it seems that the the various hosts we've all kind of done a great job miraculously because we're not all discussing what we are going to pick necessarily. We all end up picking things that are very interesting in terms of style to the wrestler. And I think that this match stands alone as being a very unique perspective on Nakamura's intercontinental title reign. Uh, same thing with mine. Like, you know, you, you have MMA shooter match, and then here you get this, you know, Lucha Libre influenced uh, kind of hard hitting, you know, defense or, you know, title title challenge from uh, Nakamura. It's uh, it's just very different. I think once we get to Sir Sam's, you guys are going to see an even different perspective on, on Nakamura. So, you know, it's, it's kind of cool to just have so much diversity when it comes to the type of matches we're picking for him. Yeah, you know, I had to sprinkle in a little uh, Rich Ladder Pro Wrestling in here. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, so Nakamura ends up hitting the uh, the Beaumaier from the middle rope and then a running Beaumaier to get the win here and regain the IC title and start his second reign. Um, I went four and a quarter on this. I, I would have gone a smooth four on it, to be honest with you. I thought it was really good. As you know, I don't believe in quarters, so I also went with a four, smooth four, no. even four. Couldn't, couldn't <laughs> I, get it up to four and a half, but definitely a four. This is an excellent I, match. I also like to point out that this is the first time in history that anybody has ever been a multi-time holder of this championship. So, you know, set the record with defenses, becomes the first man to regain the title. He's just making history all over the place. Yeah. So after this defense, um, he goes on to Destruction Tour, September 29th. He defeats Shelton X. Benjamin again to make his first defense of this reign. Then One, one thing with that, too, and I, I think we need to touch base on it, is that's coming off of the G1 where he had a, a very good G1 but lost to Shelton Benjamin on the final day, which was what prevented him from going forward. And one thing, even though they don't get counted as part of a title reign, whoever the summertime champion is for any of the titles, especially like one of the secondary belts, those really do come to define the belt itself because even though they're not official title defenses, they typically result – any losses that champion has could hypothetically result in – future title challenges, they also kind of show you where in the pecking order that champion is perceived. And when you have it on a top guy like Nakamura going through a G1, defeating top stars, even though they're not title matches, they tend to like really elevate the perception of that belt and the champion itself. And that's kind of what produced that first title challenge uh, with Shelton as well. Yeah, excellent point there. Um, So he defeats Shelton again. And then he makes his next defense on October 14th at King of Pro Wrestling, where he takes on uh, Marifuji. Uh, I watched this match. I loved it. I did not get a chance to watch this one, but I've only heard great things about it. And I know uh, our listener, Highest Fly Flow, definitely said we should watch this one. So it's definitely on my cue to watch. 
I watched it as well, and yeah, I also I'd never seen this match before. Really enjoyed it. A game of high stakes um, when these guys trade strikes or holds. So I definitely recommend it if you've got the time to watch it. Give it a watch. It's a really fun match. So he defeats Marafuji and then goes on to Power Struggle November 9th for his third defense. And he's going against Minoru Suzuki here. So in the past, we've seen him you know, have this rivalry with Suzuki-gun. He was facing Archer and Benjamin and Dave Boy Smith Jr. And now he's clashing with Suzuki here. And this match had a stipulation where uh, if Nakamura would have lost, he would have had to join Suzuki-gun as well as losing the title. So, so they're going the the old Cena joins Nexus route. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So yeah. So he defeats Suzuki. Does not have to join Suzuki Gun. Keeps the title. And then uh, after this match, he calls out Tanahashi to be his next challenger. What sets up the first title match between these two longtime rival in over two years? And we go to Wrestle Kingdom on January fourth, twenty fourteen, and. Nakamura loses the IWGP Intercontinental Championship to Tanahashi um, in the main event, Wrestle Kingdom 8 here. And obviously we know that this is the Wrestle Kingdom where we had the fan boat, which is why this match was in the main event. Uh, it was Naito versus Okada for the IWGP Heavyweight title and then Tanahashi and uh, Nakamura here. And it, it was put up to a fan boat and the fans voted for Tanahashi and Nakamura to be in the main event here. Yeah, I mean, Tanahashi... The long, uh, you know, the the longest and most bitterest of rivals for uh, Nakamura's time in New Japan Pro Wrestling it, it is the feud that kind of defined that era of generation of stars, especially with Shibata leaving the company. Um, they'd clashed. This was the third time that they had clashed in the main event of the Tokyo Dome for a major title, and, and um, you know. The, the very fact that when we started this uh, rundown, we're talking about a title that was fought for in a, a Jersey Pro <laughs> <laughs> it's basically a shed. It's basically a shed that they're fighting in. <laughs> yeah. It's not a, not a glorious place. <laughs> and then in a little over, what, two, three years, it's headlining the Tokyo Dome with the two biggest stars in New Japan Pro Wrestling because let's not lose sight of the fact that that although Kata's the IWGP champion at this time, and although Naito's on his rise and everything, Tanahashi is still the actual ace of the company. And um, the fact that Nakamura is defending the, the belt against him, it speaks to two things. It's like Nakamura has elevated himself through the course of holding this belt to, again, being seen as a peer to Tanahashi, who is the ace of the company. So generation no rivals. This is kind of that thing that we talked about. The first uh, reign kind of lacked in that now we've got a longtime generational rival. We've got a main stage again. We've got uh, a big time star. I mean, Nakamura already was the big star, but now he's going up against one of the tip top guys in the company on, on the biggest stage. And it doesn't get bit bigger than Wrestle Kingdom. Right. And uh, so this so he loses the belt here and that ends his second reign. Uh, any quick thoughts on, on the second reign there? It's obviously not as long and quite as, yeah, it's, it's it's just not as long as the first. So it doesn't have a chance to be on that same level. And, you know, the matches with Shelton Benjamin, I always feel like it's almost like that old, that uh, Mean Girls gif of stop trying to make Fetch happen. <laughs> stop trying to make Shelton Benjamin happen. Um, and, uh, and 
for whatever reason, Suzuki and Nakamura, even though you'd think the two styles would work together in that match, that just doesn't seem to work out. Um, so that obviously this match against Tanahashi at, at Wrestle Kingdom's a, an amazing end to the second reign, but it's, it certainly doesn't reach the same heights as the, the first reign. I, I would actually argue that this might actually have reached higher heights in the sense that you see him wrestle three bigger stars than any of, of the, the com, uh, yeah. competitors that he wrestled in the first reign, although it's not as long and it, although it's not as, uh, you know, like, you know, it doesn't have as many defenses, obviously. You, you see him regaining the title from La Sombra, who's a tip-top star from Mexico. You see him wrestling Naomichi Marafuji, who, you know, there was a time where he was a top star in the biggest Japanese wrestling company in the world. And he's, you know, still to this day re- uh, revered as, like, one of the top pro elite legends that are out there. One of the greatest performers of his generation. And uh, it was a big deal at the time. It was a dream match for for Nakamura and uh, Marafuji to wrestle. We kind of glossed over it, but it absolutely was a big deal. And then Suzuki, again, Pearl Legend, that was a big deal. And that was the culmination of a long-standing feud that Chaos and uh, Suzuki Goon had been going through. Like that's the culmination of their bitter feud. So I think there are actually higher heights here than the first reign, where I think the uh, the first reign might exceed it is in quality of matches there might be some better quality matches than these ones but these actually probably mean more right it's yeah totally that's perfect yeah quality matches in that first run but here is where you see the title ascend even more where he's wrestling guys like marifuji and Suzuki and tanahashi it's the main event of the tokyo dome here so and and that kind of continues the rivalry with tanahashi so moving on in the quest to the third reign, um, there was a rematch between him and Tanahashi February 9th at the New Beginning in Hiroshima, where he failed to regain the title. And then the next month in March, he would go in the 2014 New Japan Cup, where he would defeat Bad Luck Fale in the finals on March 23rd. And, you know, most of the times we see when people win the New Japan Cup, they're, they're going after the IWGP title. Because at that point, it was you could choose any title you wanted. But Nakamura here, he did not choose to go after the IWGP title. He wanted to beat Tanahashi and get the IWGP IC title back. So he uses his New Japan Cup win to challenge Tanahashi, which sets up the match that Sir Sam picked, April 6th, Invasion Attack 2014, where Nakamura faces off against Tanahashi for the third time for the uh, IWGP IC title. Also keep in mind, uh, Okada, his stablemate, is the IWGP champion. And I think that probably, I don't think that's the main motivation for why he didn't pick it, but it's part of it, if that kind of makes sense as well. Right, because at this time we really didn't see many stablemates going after each other unless it was in the G1 that happened to be in the same block. It was very rare to see stablemates challenging each other for titles. Yeah, and that and that relationship between Okada and Tanahashi, I think it's the closest modern uh, equivalent I could probably come up with in New Japan today is maybe Zack Sabre Jr. and Minoru Suzuki. You know, Minoru Suzuki is clearly the leader of of the group, but the top competitor and the ace of of that group is Zack Sabre Jr. And 
I think that's kind of the same sort of uh, dynamic that you see between Okada and Nakamura. Nakamura is the Suzuki. He is the mentor. He's the leader of the group. But the younger, more athletically gifted star athlete that they're kind of centering things around is, you know, Okada. Right. So, uh, Sam, why did you end up picking this matchup? The reason I picked this, I mean, Josh did a, a really good job kind of talking about Nakamura and Tanahashi and their rivalry and their storied rivalry earlier. Uh, and this is, I mean, there's they have matches after this, but this feels like a, a really big point in that rivalry um, because while Shinsuke sort of started out as the sort of the wonder kid of New Japan, he undoubtedly got overtaken by Tanahashi uh, and his, I don't know the exact um, list of their wins and losses, but at this point has been overtaken and clearly over the last, over the previous two matches got beaten by Tanahashi and sort of comes into this match with really a lot to prove. And Tanahashi, the way that he wrestles this match is so unashamedly aggressive. It's a really, really interesting match to see Tanahashi do because Tanahashi's almost wrestling full heel. And by the end of it, he's got the crowd booing him. Um, yep. And the crowd is <laughs> so heavily on Nakamura's <laughs> side uh, in this. I don't know. I, I almost want to rewatch this to count the amount of moves that Nakamura does because I feel <laughs> like it would be less than 20 because uh, he is so Nakamura has, sorry, Tanahashi rips the crap out of Nakamura's leg. Like every single chance he gets, he hits the knee, hits the knee, hits the knee, hits the knee and tears Nakamura's knee apart. And you know what? And it's the perfect foil for Nakamura because to do anything, Nakamura uses his legs. His finisher is a knee to the face. And what's Tanahashi doing? Ripping that knee to shreds uh, and doing it in such an aggressive fashion that the eventual win that Nakamura has is just so triumphant because of that. Uh, and this feels, this match feels so personal because of everything that's built up between these two and like such a triumph for Nakamura, because it's like he has finally managed to overcome this guy who has been beating him for so long. And not only has he done it, he's done it against this guy who's trying to absolutely tear the crap out of his, out of, like really, really hurt him. Yeah, I really love this matchup here, and you know, I was talking with Josh about this, and we mentioned it too last week with Shibata. I I love when people force Tanahashi out of that kind of babyface, you know, clean wrestler. I love when Tanahashi gets pushed and he he becomes a dick, and he he becomes more aggressive. And I think that's a, it's a different Tanahashi, and his matches go to a, a different level when he gets forced in that. We we talked about that earlier with the the Abushi G one match. He got pushed to that level. And so I love here that he, he ups the intensity, he ups the aggression, and, you know, he's being very cocky, and he wants to fully, you know, prove that he is the best out of the new Three Musketeers, and he wants to um, put Nakamura away for a third time in a row. Yeah, and everything is on the Like, he does a good vibrations on Nakamura's knee. He does two high-fly flows onto Nakamura's knee. It, it's just so aggressive and arrogant from Tanahashi. 
Yeah, the um the moment where you can tell that he's wrestling this uh I mean, I'm going to call it like it is, the heel style <laughs> is oh, 100%. When when uh Nakamura's on the ropes and he goes for a kick and Tanahashi catches the kick and they're standing there and he's holding the leg and you think like he's going to put his, you know, Nakamura's foot down and he just keeps pausing and pausing and pausing. And then he looks at him and then he just jabs <laughs> an elbow into his knee and the crowd did not like that. They're like, boo. And you're like, oh. And, I and like the crowd this. is. Oh, no, go ahead. What, what's with the crowd? The crowd is so into this. Yeah, yeah. I like to call this DDT Tanahashi because uh, I remember <laughs> I remember when he went to go work in DDT and he wrestled as a heel and like he's just such a dick and I freaking love it. <laughs> And um, this match is so unique, man. And, and uh, again, like I, I keep saying that word and bringing up the diversity of these matches because, you know, you have the Wrestle Kingdom match and that's like your classic Tanahashi uh, Nakamura style of match, you know, main event Tokyo Dome epic, you know, they're your typical style match. And then um, this same um, it wasn't quite as aggressive or anything of that nature, but this same um, strategy that he's using at an invasion attack is what he used to gain the upper hand at new beginning. And it's attacking the leg and he takes it even a step further and it's almost overkill. I mean, he's doing high fly flows onto this dude's legs and just hitting him with every single variation of a uh, dragon screw. And he's just destroying his legs. And one thing I like, you know, everyone has different takes on the whole leg selling thing. You know, um, there's some people that think that, you know, the guy should just be a la Macho Man Randy Savage, unable to like walk on one of the legs and, and you know, Ricky Morton and everything like that. And then there's other people who, you know, criticize when guys like just completely ignore all the legwork that's been done and just start running full force and, and never go back to it, you know. But I think Nakamura kind of strikes a really good balance in that he does use his legs, but he always sells before. And after he's kind of used it and it, you know, in a real fight, if a guy's like, 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 let's say hitting you with leg kicks and stuff, if you're at the point where you can't use your leg, the match is over. In most cases, you can still use the leg. It just hurts a lot. You know what I mean? Might hinder you a bit, but you still can fight in a realistic manner. And that's kind of what Nakamura does here. But like you said, uh, Sam, I don't know how many matches, how many, this might be the most one-sided match I've, I've ever seen, uh, at this phase of his career. I mean, Nakamura gets so little offense. Uh, Tanahashi is just dismantling him the entire match. And to see him work as a babyface in peril and work from underneath the whole time and to get that simpy from the crowd, he is so good at it. Like, it's it's so unique and it's so incredible, man. His selling is so incredible. His facial expressions, the way he holds his knee and the way he wraps his knee around his other leg or his other leg around his knee um, and like pulls on it as if he's trying to like stretch it out or trying to like massage it out and force the pain out. It's incredible the way he does it. And to get to like what you're saying about the knee, the way I look at it is like adrenaline kicks in for the moment when he needs to. But as soon as like, as soon as he hit, like he hits a, hits a bomb AA uh, and 
afterwards just falls on the floor writhing with his knee and same with when he gets his knees up to counter the high fly flow it kills him like the look at he looks like he hurts more than Tanahashi <laughs> to get his knees up for the high for the high fly flow because Tanahashi has just been every single chance he gets he's just chopping stomping whipping like just killing Nakamura's knee there there's something that happens in wrestling like where if a guy does something very unique and different I'll I'll pop for it because I think that there should be more versatility and I like when there's unique wrestling as opposed to everyone being carbon copies and the one thing that Tanahashi does in this match towards the end that is so great and it, and it, it is what elevates this match above many of their other matches is the the closing sequence is after Nakamura gets the upper hand. He starts uh, going into a finishing sequence where he starts landing Bombayes. Tanahashi puts his arms up in an X and blocks the first Bombaye. And I'm like, oh, my God. I, I remember th- there, there's a match uh, from 86. It's uh, Jake Roberts versus uh, Rick Steamboat. And Rick Steamboat keeps trying to throw the chop at Jake Roberts. So Jake Roberts decides I'm going to put my arms up and block it. (laughs) (laughs) And I've never seen anyone like cross their arms and block a chop before. And I was like, Oh, this man, Jake Roberts is a freaking genius. So when I see people do stuff like that, I'm like, why don't people use a guard in wrestling when you're getting struck? It's (laughs) like, it seems so simple. And I, I loved that, but like, you know, Nakamura hits hits the freaking guard of Tanahashi. It hurts both guys, and then Nakamura uses the other leg to land the the opposite alternative bomba. Oh, I didn't I was like, catch that. Oh, it's so, oh, yeah. that's so good. He throws the right leg. It gets blocked. He goes backwards. He makes the face. He's holding his knee. Tanahashi's loopy, and then he hits him with the left leg. It's so good. Yeah, just just brilliant storytelling <laughs> there. Um, yeah, Nakamura, Tanahashi yet yeah, just destroyed Nakamura's knee this whole match, and yeah, I love too. There was like a near um, countout spot towards the beginning. Uh, Tanahashi hits the high fly flow to the outside, and we get to dramatic nineteen, and Nakamura just yep. barely, barely gets in, and that's great too. Just so much emotion in this match, and yeah, this was a masterpiece. Agreed. Five stars, easy. And the the finishing sequence is pretty pretty incredible. Uh, it's basically Nakamura just hitting Bombay. It's like he hits that first Bombay that we just talked about, goes to the top rope, hits him with another one, goes to the top rope, hits him with another one, and then hits him with one final proper one and hits him with four. And uh, actually, I'm sorry, no, he hits him with the three, yep. goes for the kicks pin. Out. Nakamura kicks or uh, Tanahashi kicks out, and you're like, "What is it going to take?" And then he hits he hits him with a fourth and final decisive one to to put down the ace, and um, and it's weird because suddenly Tanahashi's been horrible the whole match, and then gets put down, and you kind of regain a bit of respect and sympathy for the guy because he got put down, and on the flip side, like. Nakamura survived the onslaught and he looks better coming out of it. It does favors for both guys. This is a perfectly booked match. Like it's incredible. So uh, Sam, were you, were you serious on uh, your five stars? Yeah. A hundred percent. This is a great match. This is a fantastic match. And I hadn't seen it before I went, went to watch this, um, went to watch through for this project. I thought we'd be doing um, the wrestle kingdom match. And then I saw this one and I was like, yep, this is it. 
this you know this isn't the Wrestle Kingdom match feels like a big event for Tanahashi and Nakamura and for the belt, but this feels like a real triumph for Nakamura. Like this feels personal. This feels like a personal triumph for Nakamura. Um, and yeah, it's just, a, yeah, it's, it's a really unique match for a, a new Japan main event, but it's perfect. It's so good. Uh, I, I personally, I'm going to go four and a half on this one. Um, there's no real reason. Like I can't criticize anything about the match necessarily. They told the story they wanted to tell. I just think it was a four and a half story. But with that being said, four and a half, it means it's like absolutely incredible. I love this yeah. match. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. I'm it's, also, it's a banger. Yeah. I'm also four and a half here. Once again. Yeah. Kind of same thinking as you, Josh. I guess, I don't know for whatever. I just felt it was a four and a half story. And just when I compare it to other matches that I've given five to, or even 4.75, I don't know. Just there's something a smidge missing, but yeah, four and a half is still a great rating, still a, a match of the year contender rating there. So definitely, if you guys have not uh, watched this match, go out of your way to check this one out. And and, and we're we're back on the uh, Nakamura train. Right. Three-time IWGB Intercontinental Champion. Yeah, just you know, further just uh, solidifying himself as kind of the face of the IC Championship and continuing to elevate this title to new levels so uh uh at the end of this match daniel gracie comes out <laughs> of the gracie this is, family this, fame. this could wipe half the star <laughs> off maybe <laughs> <laughs> and he and he challenges nakamura to a match into a title match and he you know it's it's uh i forget which who the other gracie was but it's Roy- the two gracies hoyler r-o-l-l-e-s Oh, Holes. Yeah, it's Holes Gracie and Daniel Gracie against... Like uh, the discount Gracies. It's not even the good ones. <laughs> <laughs> against Nakamura and Sakuraba comes to his side. Sakuraba actually joins Chaos and uh, becomes tag team partners with Nakamura. And they enter into a feud with these guys on some high-profile shows. And God, this was this is the point where Kidani was trying to bring in shooters and kind of restart the whole uh, UWFI thing. Anokiism? And it's... Yeah, he wanted to bring in some Inokiism. He was talking about signing like Shinya Aoki and stuff like that. And I got to tell you, this is a black mark on uh, Nakamura's title reign. This shit sucks so <laughs> fucking bad. <laughs> uh, so uh, following this Tanahashi match, uh, Nakamura would go on a North American tour with Ring of Honor for their World of the Worlds tour where he will face off against Kevin Steen better known now as Kevin Owens, on May 17th. And that match is free on Ring of Honor's YouTube. I've watched it in the past, and that's just a great matchup. Uh, Nakamura, Kevin Owens, check that out. And then, I think it's overrated. So following that, he goes back to Japan later that month where he would make um, his first successful defense in the third reign against... Um, Daniel Gracie here, so he defeats Daniel Gracie. Uh, have any of you guys seen that match? Yeah, I've seen it. It's really bad. It's like ten minutes. I wouldn't recommend watching it. I will say it is the low point of Nakamura's IWGP title reign or Intercontinental title reigns for sure. It's not good. It's not good at all. It's bad. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, actually, yeah, I saw the reviews just... of this thing and was like, no, nah, I'll pass on that. There's a, <laughs> there's a lot of matches in this list. I'm not going to waste my time on that. Yeah. I haven't even looked at the reviews. Oh, God. Yeah, if you go to uh, Cage Match, you can't even find a review on it. Um, <laughs> I'm looking at the event, and did anyone even rate this on their review? God, no. Yeah, it's bad. I'll tell you that, though. Yeah, yeah so, it's not good. Yeah, stay far away from that one. Um, so from there, he goes on to Dominion, June 21st of that year, and he would lose the title to Bad Luck Fale in his second defense, ending his third reign. So uh, another short reign here. Uh, but what did you guys think about this reign? Started out so well. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, at this point, Nakamura's already put in the work to like carve out his legacy. So it's not really about developing the legacy anymore. Like the, the title is so associated with him, but um, you know, it, it is kind of looked down on. You've got the Daniel Gracie match, which is not good. Uh, I will say the the Bad Luck Folly match, um, it headlined Dominion that year. So I think it's a little bit of a disappointment for a headliner for Dominion, but in the same respect, it is one of the better Bad Luck Folly matches, probably like a three and a half star match. And it was a surprise at the time, um, you know, that the underboss was being elevated to the level to where he could beat Nakamura. And a lot of this was built off of their New Japan Cup final match, where Nak- that, that match, Nakamura gets busted open and bleeds very profusely and was in a lot of trouble and finally overcame Fale. And I think they'd been kind of building to another big match with them. So this was their attempt to kind of push Bad Luck Fale as like another, you know, top pushed guy in Bullet Club. I don't know that it worked out, but when you look at the names, Daniel Gracie, Balak Fale, it's not necessarily Marafuji, you know, Tanahashi and uh, <laughs> Suzuki. It's not quite that. Yeah, so yeah, we kind of started off on, on the highest heights on this reign and, and this feud with Tanahashi, and then, yeah, slowly kind of plummet our way down to uh, Bad Luck Fale. Um, but again, you know, the IC title is still seen in high regard, so it's main eventing evasion attack it's main eventing dominion so it's still seen as a main event title even though this reign might not be as great as the first two yeah the the good news is that the title wouldn't stay off of him for very long and you know this is kind of just a blip right and that, that leads us to the fourth reign so on september 21st there's a rematch with Fale at destruction in Kobe and Nakamura quickly gets the title back and defeats Balak Fale. It's just kick off the fourth reign. He would then make his first successful title defense at power struggle against Katsuyori Shibata. And we've kind of talked about the background and the backstory of those guys and the whole uh, new three musketeers. So after defeating Shibata, he moves on to Russell kingdom nine, January 4th, 2015, where he would face off against Kota Ibushi in defeat. Abushi in his second uh, title defense, and I think this is probably one of his more famous title matches, just because it was on that Wrestle Kingdom Nine show that a lot of Westerners kind of jumped in on with the promotion of Global Force Wrestling. Yeah, I mean, I think there's no um, splitting hairs about it. This is the defining match of Shinsuke Nakamura's career. Uh, this is his great his from an in ring standpoint, creatively. Uh, it's the most compelling match he's ever taken place in. It is the match that launched Kotobushi into an even higher stratosphere of superstardom. Uh, it, 
it's what gave the company confidence to start going with him later that year and to really push him as a commodity and, you know, kind of set him on the trajectory of stardom that he's on even to this current day. Um, and it's, it's a masterpiece. It's a five-star classic. It's, yeah. And not only that, I mean, like we talked about, the entrance, the, the, that indelible moment where he's wearing the crown and he's coming out and uh, the entrance graphic for the, for the uh, show, it shows like, you know, that they've got Okada and Tanahashi. Those guys are aces, but there's only one King and that's Nakamura and Nakamura comes out and he does the pose and that moment, like that's, that's like his career high. Uh, It's incredible. And and also they're coming out on a worldwide stage to the North American audience and really expanding their view to everybody. And it is what made Nakamura even greater of a legend. Like it's this, this, we could have, any one of us could have picked this match easily, but it's so known and so reviewed. It almost would have seemed like a disservice to pick this match, but it, yeah, it's, it's Nakamura's finest hour. I was very surprised none of us picked this match because <laughs> it is like you've just you've said it perfectly. This is the pinnacle of everything that he did um, in you know as a as a wrestler in New Japan as an Intercontinental Champion. Him coming out with that crown is just an incredible image, and he backed up the fact that he was coming out with a crown with one of the great. Wrestle Kingdom matches and Wrestle Kingdom has had some amazing matches and this is this will always stand amongst the best. Yeah, definitely. Hands down. So if you have not watched this match yet, I don't know what you're doing. You need to go out and watch uh, Nakamura. And Why are you Ushi. listening to this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> Pause the podcast and go watch yeah. Wrestle Kingdom 9 and then, and then come back right away. Um, so then from there, he makes his third defense on New Beginning in Sendai, February 14th, where he would defeat Yuji Nagata. And then his fourth reign would end come Wrestling Dontaku 2015, May 3rd, where he's defeated by his longtime rival and friend, Hiroki Goto. And then they would have a rematch on July 5th at Dominion in Osaka Joe Hall, but uh, Goto defeated him again. Um, so we see this Goto rivalry kind of pick back up here towards the end of this reign. I, I did watch the Dominion match, and once again, these guys always work so well together and just have a really hard-hitting matchups. And I think Nakamura, you know, with that friendship, I think he, he he gives a lot to Goto, and he cares about kind of like the positioning and career of Goto and really gives him a lot and gives him some great matches. Yeah, and not only that, I think the company was uh... – going with Goto at the time, they were, um, you know, very behind him. I think that Goto as a worker was a much more complete worker in 2015, as opposed to the, the Goto version that I saw in 2012. Um, I actually elected to watch the, uh, the match that we're going to talk about when, um, Nakamura regains the title. But, um, you know, overall you look at this, this, uh, title run, you know, from September of 2014 to May of 2015. And it is the last great Nakamura title reign that he would ever have. And um, the timing of it is very precarious because he he hits his highest heights in the Kota Bushi match, drops the title in May, and then doesn't regain it at Dominion like everyone would suppose. And that's leading right into the G1. And he's at the height of his popularity. And people are like, Oh, he doesn't have the IC title going into the G1 this year. 
that frees him up to maybe win the G1 <laughs> hypothetically. Right. And he, he makes it to the finals uh, this year um, defeating, I believe he defeats Okada in the, um, the B block finals or the A block finals. I can't remember, but he makes it to the finals against Tanahashi and, you know, he, he just beat, you know, the freaking ace of the company. Now he's going up against Tanahashi and they have their career best match as well. Um, the best match that they've ever had against one another, but he loses to Tanahashi. And like, you're like thinking that this guy's done with the IWGP IC title scene and maybe is on the precipice of ascending back to IWGP title status. And Tanahashi's like, no, baby, that's not for you. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and that's kind of the shame. And then that, that's what leads us into the, uh, the fifth and final reign. But interestingly enough, in that tournament, after the two uh, defeats he faced uh, that he had against Goto, they faced off in the same block, and he actually tapped Goto out with an armbar to create their, their match at Destruction. So that was sort of the thing that was the impetus for that match. Nice. So, yeah, that kicks off the fifth reign. Uh, Destruction in Kobe, he defeats Goto to get the title back for the fifth time. Then from there, oh, and Josh, you said you watched this match. Any any comments on this on that Goto match? Yeah, I think it's their best match. Um, it it's very similar in um, overall story, well, overall quality to the uh, the match they had at Dominion. This match is the culmination. I like culmination matches because there's always a lot of callbacks to things that happened in the the feud. Um, I, I wouldn't. I think all these matches they had were very good. I wouldn't say they're blow away. Uh, this one I'd probably go like four and a quarter on it. I think uh, a lot of people were higher on it at the time it happened. But um, you know, ultimately Nakamura, you know, beats Goto, takes takes his belt back from Goto, and you know, that's a fifth record setting uh you know wins his title for a fifth time record setting time and it's it's incredible and you know goto was kind of the thorn in his side all year long and that was like this is the one guy that he's really feuded with for a long period of time over the um the iwgp title you know uh it, with, with tanahashi it always felt like tanahashi and him were kind of fighting for this belt but tanahashi was here for a cup of tea and was going to leave but goto is the guy he originally won the belt from it's the guy that he lost the belt to won it back from so i mean they they had a long-standing career or you know career rivalry when it comes to this upper mid-card title here yeah sam did you, did you watch this one by chance i watched the dominion match as well <laughs> so <laughs> i um i don't know these two they're just really really good together and as as I think you said, Jeremy, I think Nakamura really wants to emphasize and wants to put Goto over, and that comes across um, because he, you know, he's on his best behavior in these matches. He is, uh, and and Goto brings it as Goto always does. I've, I don't think I've ever seen a bad Goto match, honestly. Um, don't don't recommend me one, but <laughs> like, he always he always just gives it his all, and you know. If, it's kind of, I don't know, coming back, it's the, the fifth reign. By now, it's, I could, I, obviously, I wasn't watching at the time, but I can see why, you know, people might have been disappointed with, it's like, oh, he's gone back to the IC title again. 
just in time for Wrestle Kingdom where he can have another match. And, you know, the match that's coming up against AJ Styles is a really great match. But I can definitely see how, if you're a big Nakamura guy at this point, you may have been a bit like, oh, gosh, you know, we've, I've, I've seen this before and I want something different from my, from my, my favorite wrestler. Mm. Well, I, I was watching at the time, and I can tell you what people thought, at least here in the States. Uh, Di- and uh, Rich Latta will uh, attest to this, because I remember him and I talking about this very extensively at the time. We thought that he was doing a favor to elevate Goto, and that's the direction the company wanted to go. Goto is his last big feud before he goes back up to the heavy uh, to the main event title scene, and that's what it felt like. It felt like he Goto was was an obstacle he had to get past, so that he could leave the IC title in a better state. Mm-hmm. But we were like, after Wrestle Kingdom, all bets are off. Like we were like, he is for sure going to be in the heavyweight title scene. They cannot deny this man Nakamura any longer. None of us were thinking about Kenny Omega. None of us like th- like that was not a forethought that anybody had. Like, yeah, we knew he was talented and everything, but we were not like thinking that that guy was on the rise at, at all. Like, we're like, look at the big four. You got Tanahashi, you got Okada, you got AJ, and you got Knock. Knock is due. It is his time. He's he's up, man. Like, we're like, he got this bum goto out of there. <laughs> oh. he's gonna he's gonna go to Wrestle Kingdom. He's gonna beat AJ's ass. And after he does that, it's smooth sailings. IWGP, he's going to win the G1 this year, either the Double New Japan Cup. <laughs> <laughs> we, we didn't think that, but we were like, you know, we, we knew Naito was coming, but we're like, we're like, he's either winning the Cup or he's winning the G1, and it's his time. He cannot be denied any longer. Like, those, the two guys we were worried about was like Shibata and Naito. We're like, what? Shibata and Naito, they're, they're coming too. And we're like, that's great because that sets up new challengers for him. I was absolutely convinced this guy was going to win an IWGP title for sure. <laughs> God, I was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so after Destruction in Kobe, he makes his first uh, title defense of the fifth reign at Power Struggle of that year where he defeats Machine Gun Carl Anderson, and this was avenging a loss in the 2015 G1 Climax. And, and you know what else? He always had really good matches with Carl Anderson and always – like I think I've always heard him and Carl are pretty close, and he always made Carl look like a million bucks. Yeah, those guys great chemistry. And Carl is a great wrestler too. And I'm not saying like he, it's all because Nakamura. Like those those two guys had great chemistry, like you said. And then after that, we go to Wrestle Kingdom 10, January 4th, 2016, in the epic match against AJ Styles um, for the IC title. He defeats AJ here in the second defense of the fifth reign. And again, this is an- another one of his very popular title matches that we could, any one of us could have easily picked to do a full review on. But I think we, all three of us kind of think like it's been talked about a lot. And so we kind of picked some hidden gems that people don't really talk about that much. But this Wrestle Kingdom 10 match was absolutely incredible. Uh, a match that people still talk about today and a match that we were hoping to get on a WWE stage, but um, didn't hit quite that level. Uh, but definitely a great last stand for both of these guys in New Japan. Yeah, I think I've rewatched it recently. And to be honest with you, I don't think it really holds up as high as I remember it. But every time I've ever watched it, and I've watched it many, many, many times, I, I love this match. And um, it was 
unfortunately, the send-off <laughs> for both AJ Styles and Shinsuke Nakamura. And I don't think very many people knew that. I mean, the funny thing was, like, we were thinking that it maybe was Styles. Like, Styles talked about, like, his back, retiring. Uh, we knew that contract, you know, that there was a situation. But I don't think anyone was, like, he's going to WWE for sure or anything like that. And I definitely did not think Nakamura was leaving. And... um but yeah, he he. Uh, the great thing was um, at the end of the match when he shows respect, and that, there's very few times that, that he like did that. Like the Ibushi match is one of them. He shows respect to Ibushi at the end of the match, and then him and AJ Styles show respect to one another. And that he uh, Nakamura had been feuding with the Bullet Club leading into this match. You know the the Carl Anderson match and everything. And then this was kind of like the last straw for the villainous Bullet Club when it comes to AJ, and was kind of the impetus for the rise of Kenny Omega. And after this match, there was a promised title defense between Kenny Omega and Nakamura that we never ended up getting. I think we should talk about that just very briefly as we kind of wrap up, you know, the uh, this review project. Right. So he defeats AJ, and then hours after that, there are rumors on the dirt sheets that Nakamura had given his notice the morning of the Tokyo Dome and uh, announcing that he was going to WWE. He would uh, remain under contract and was expected to finish off his contracted dates with the promotion before leaving. Then on January 12th, Nakamura would confirm that he is leaving New Japan and it was announced that he was stripped of the IWGP IC title. So like you were mentioning, Josh, they did not have him drop the title before he left. They decided to strip him of the title um, and eventually do something, go in a different direction to um, get it on Kenny Omega, but we did not get that Kenny Omega Nakamura match for the title. Yeah, and you know they they built to it uh, at uh, New Beginning or not New Beginning. Yeah, he uh, calls him out at New Year's Dash. At after, New Year's Dash, after he hits AJ Styles, he goes Shinsuke Nakamura. <laughs> <laughs> and, and also, only, mind, only Kenny Omega can. <laughs> yes. He, he beat uh, Shinsuke Nakamura with the one-winged angel yeah. in the center of the ring in that tag team match during New Year's Dash. So, like, it was very clear that he'd be the next challenger and he was going to heavyweight. And once he turned on AJ, that angle, everyone was like, oh, I, you know, just so excited to see Kenny, you know, his rise. And people were sad about Nakamura, but, like, it was a, it was this big dream match that we were promised. And we just, we never got it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so then uh, January 25th is where he would uh, officially hand the title over And that officially ends his fifth reign And then he would wrestle his last match under New Japan contract on January 30th Where he teamed up with Okada and Ishii to defeat Goto, Tanahashi, and Shibata So obviously all, all kind of the key guys in his career Guys that he's had rivalries with, teamed with, been friends with um, guys that were in his stable, um, so just you know, those guys that had a, a big impact on his career, and that's how he ended his run there in New Japan. You know, I've I've got some mixed reviews or mixed uh, emotions and feelings uh, when it comes to how I feel about this whole thing. On on the one hand, I think obviously when you look at the numbers, seventeen title defenses, you know, five title reigns, the the most title defenses combined, the most in a single reign. You know, um, he's tied with Naito for most actual title reigns, but when you compare the quality of the two reign, or, or you know, reign for reign, it, it, there's no comparison. 
Um, he elevated this title to new heights uh, and elevated himself to new heights in the midst of the process. So he's undoubtedly the greatest IWGP intercontinental champion by, by far. And there, you know, the, the next closest guy is probably Naito. But when you really think about it, no one else really consistently headlined with this belt at a top level and made it feel as prestigious or and as important as uh, Nakamura did. Nakamura took it from being uh, an afterthought to being seen and written in publications as being equal at the time as the IWGP title. And I think since he dropped it, and this is, um, I'm not blaming Kenny Omega or any of the guys that came after him, but no one else made this title feel that it was as important as the IWGP title the same way Nakamura did. Like, that just never happened again. You know, not even with Naito, not even with Tanahashi, not with Kenny Omega, none of those guys. So it's really great. But on the other hand, as great as his title defenses were, I think where you saw the heights of Nakamura during this period of time were in non-title matches during G1s and during New Japan Cups. And it seemed that he kind of did... And, you know, there's always the uh, there's always been a criticism that like Nakamura would take nights off and kind of wrestle to the level of guys that he was with. And so like in a lot of these title defenses, like in the big, big matches on the big shows, like, yeah, he would deliver. But then when he was wrestling like some of the mid card guys, he would only give so much, maybe take him to like a three, three and a half to four star level and kind of keep it sitting around there, you know. But then you see him in the G1. See him against guys like Naito, Suzuki, Ishii, Tanahashi, you know, uh, and he's putting in these bangers, <laughs> which isn't an indictment on because at the time, most of those times, he's the champion. And like I mentioned, it does speak highly of the championship, but it is the one thing that you kind of wonder as great as his run with the IC title is what if they had given him another top top run which they never actually did during that time and i think that's the one drawback of this whole thing is that we didn't get to see enough of him with the top guys during this period but you know the 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 pros probably outweigh the cons as he he did a favor in elevating an entire generation of workers that were not seen to be on the same level as the tanahashis and you know the naitos and okadas and everything of that nature yeah, I think with the the run, everyone who comes afterwards and all of the stuff that comes afterwards is standing on Nakamura's shoulders. Um, I understand what you're saying there, Josh, particularly with, you know, he didn't get a chance to wrestle an Okada. He didn't get a chance to wrestle uh, Naito. Or, but at the same time, with this reign, if you don't have this reign, you don't have you don't have Naito's reign with it where he's treating it like a piece of crap. And that's a scandal <laughs> because if, you know, if this is still a bronze bronze, uh, a black belt with a bronze thing, then it is a piece of crap still. Like if, if Nakamura doesn't get it, then Naito's just treating it how it is. And it's not a scandal, you know? And if you don't have Nakamura's reign, then you don't have Tanahashi sort of reclaiming it from Naito because it doesn't mean anything for him to restore it. Um, because what's he restoring, you know, this belt that means nothing from, uh, there's no more important figure in the history of this championship than Nakamura. And 
I kind of get where you're coming from, I guess, as a as a fan of Nakamura. Um, was this belt at in later periods? Was this belt actually holding him back? Maybe potentially. Um, you know, as we sort of said, was maybe him him running into Wrestle Kingdom ten was that maybe the time where they should have done something different? Um, but at the same time, from the belt, from from looking at this historically for the belt, Nakamura is is the champion. He is the intercontinental champion and everyone who comes since will be compared to the bar that he set. Yeah. I think you can't rewrite history. You can, uh, in hindsight, maybe criticize. I think the thing yeah. that, uh, sort of was very telling was that after he lost that G one final to Tanahashi, I think it was very clear to most of the fan base and audience that they most likely weren't going with him. You know, if they were going to, that was their chance and they chose not to. And who knows what all his motivations were for coming to America, wrestling in WWE. But I've got to imagine once you were kind of told, like, you're you're sticking where you're at and you're not coming out of it. Like you're mm-hmm. you're our top you're our tip top mid card title guy. Essentially, the role Naito has been in for the past few years. That probably was a huge motivation for him realizing like handwriting's on the wall. And I think that has a lot to do with why he went to America, honestly. Right. Once he saw that, he was never going to be elevated again into that IWGB heavyweight title picture. He's like, all right, I've always loved American culture and working in America. Let me take my chances there and try to um, you know, elevate myself and become a bigger uh, global star. Um, so, yeah, I can definitely understand his thoughts there and, and leaving through that. Um, so... That kind of wraps it up. Uh, any uh, final thoughts here on the title reign? On, on, on Nakamura and all his title reigns? I honestly feel like I summed up everything in, in that uh, brief summation there. Um, any thoughts you guys have? But, uh, you know, I, I love doing this project. I think it uh, was great. Yeah, I've, I've said everything I think I'd, I feel like I can say about it. Um, but, yeah, this was, this was a lot of fun, and it's definitely – it was fun to dive into those matches, those lesser known matches for sure. Yeah. I had a great time going back and watching all uh, these Nakamura matches. And yeah, this is an incredible superstar. Some great title reigns. Um, so let's uh, jump into these questions you know here. Be- be- before we jump into the questions, I got a question and we don't have to spend a lot of time on it, but I think this renaissance of classic, classic, like, era defining matches that we've seen in new japan you know uh occurred sort of on the heels of of nakamura leaving the company do you guys think because i will say this as much as i love these matches and as much as i loved his time there i think there could be an argument to be made that while he was there he didn't uh kind of what we said about aj styles a, a few weeks ago that at the time people were raving about the matches but I don't think they live up to 2016, 2017, 2018 era New Japan's working style. Do you think if he had stayed, he would have got bypassed by the younger performers? Or do you do you think like maybe like Tanahashi, he would have been able to still hang with those guys? Uh, I don't know. It's an interesting question. Like you mentioned, you know, Nakamura would, would wrestle to the guy, the level of the guys he was in there with. So maybe depending on which young guy he was in there with, maybe he could hold up with them 
Um, and his selling is incredible. I think his selling would have definitely helped him in any situation. Uh, I, I just wonder, because you look at his NXT run, I know it's a different situation, and he was there was a clear decline from the uh, Sami Zayn match to where he never really got to those heights again. Like, we never saw a New Japan Nakamura. Um, and I'm wondering if it's because of the environment or if he was clearly just declining. And I think there is a little of that in there, you know? Yeah. What do you think, uh, so? I think it's it's very – oh, man, it's, it's really hard to tell. Um, I – I, I didn't really looked at a lot of... I probably only looked at a handful of Nakamura matches um, before doing this project with you guys. Um, and, you know, just a handful of his, you know, really biggest matches. I think you're right about the selling, but his style was very punishing. Very... Mm. And I don't know if he could have wrestled you know like the half an hour matches with Kenny Omega or Kota Ibushi he probably would have still had some great matches but I think he would have probably been overtaken um by the generation that's now come through the Jay Whites the the Kota Ibushi's the Kenny well Kenny Omega when he was still there um and ultimately he was already eclipsed by Okada in terms of roster positioning Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's just one of those great what ifs, you know, I, I don't know if that would have uh, in, incited him to raise his game mm. or if that would have been like, I'm going to take a step back and let these young bucks, you know, kind of handle things sort of like what Tanahashi and Suzuki sort of had to do to a certain degree. Right. I mean, certainly based on the evidence. So like the, the best piece of evidence we've got as to where he ended up would be the WrestleMania match with AJ Styles. And Rightio, they did go in with absolutely unfair expectations. It was as much set up by the fans and the WWE as, as it was the fault of those two going into it. But you've got to imagine they gave that match everything they possibly could. And as good as it is, and it's, it is a good match, it's absolutely not what... You know, it's it's not on the same level as the stuff we see in New Japan. And you've got to imagine that that was those guys going as hard and as doing as much as they could to get that match over, and it didn't. Um, it, it didn't get to go, that standard. And that's the, best, that's the best evidence we've got as to what he could have handled in 2017, 2018. Going as hard as they could, giving everything they could, under the guidance of the agent. <laughs> <laughs> in, in wwe you got an agent and they tell you how to wrestle they tell you what to do it ain't the, it's not even wrestling wwe's not even wrestling it's bullshit like so i <laughs> i see what you're saying but but anyways i uh let's let's you, you want to jump into these questions jeremy yeah let's run through these questions so first from reddit user tomda24 should nakamura have had more and longer reigns as iwgp heavyweight champion <laughs> Uh, well, you know, that, um, when he was kind of booked for those title reigns in most cases, the booking was not what it should have been. There was a lot of hot shotting business wasn't where it should have been. He probably should have, but at the same time, um, you know, Nakamura hadn't really even really found himself completely during that period. My argument is I wish that he would have gotten a title reign later, uh, 
in his, you know, ultimate form. Uh, but, you know, decisions were made. Things, th- things happened. <laughs> yeah, I, I would have loved to see in a King of Strong style Nakamura title reign in a, in a long kind of, you know, similar to his first IC title reign, I think would have been great to see. To play devil's advocate, part of the, the amazing luster of the IWGP heavyweight championship is that not every it, like it's a really exclusive championship to hold mm. and the fact that Nakamura didn't get that on a second on like another time in his ultimate form almost adds to the prestige of that belt I you know true. I would have loved to have seen that that happen um but well obviously I wouldn't be watching at the time but talking you know it would have been cool for that to happen but uh you know it, there's there's some positives in the fact that it didn't. Yeah. Yeah. Qu- quality insight from Sir Sam. That's <laughs> <laughs> what uh, you get. <laughs> next question here from Reddit user PSAN91 uh, says, where do you think Shinsuke would have been placed on the card if he had never left to go to WWE? Do you think he would have gotten another IWGP title run? I think it's possible, but it's uh, with so many factors, you know, other guys leaving, other guys being uh, elevated, it's really hard to know that entirely. Um, I think it was easier to kind of project for Shibata because there was a clear story arc, and I think things were a little bit clearer, uh, you know, when I was kind of like projecting things last week. But I think it's harder with Nakamura. I think that there's a good likelihood he wouldn't have gotten another title run personally i agree yeah i think based off what we kind of saw in that that final g1 and constantly being in in the ic title picture i i think he was kind of it's going to be slated for the ic division and i think he would have probably just been a guy who was either the champion or challenging for the championship probably if he was still there i i think personally we would have seen him slip into a tanahashi-esque role over time you know, L- guys that are still at the top, but who aren't really hogging the top spots. I think, I think, you know, it would have been very interesting to see what happened with the Jay White chaos saga had he still been there. Mm, yeah. You know what would have been an interesting position for him? The U.S. title holder. Yeah, very popular Possibly. in the West. Uh, they could have used him to try and uh, you know, catapult that title and get it over. Yeah, and he wears red pants, and the belt's red. So. <laughs> <laughs> Book it. <laughs> uh, next question here from Reddit user Just a Little Bear Zero One. When you picked your matches to review, did you find yourselves going for your personal favorites, most historically significant that was available, or a mix of both? Love the show. Uh, I think a mix of both. I I, I think it's uh, you know maybe there are some people that we're not along for the ride and would like to hear us talk about Abushi and um, the AJ matches in wrestle kingdom. But I just feel like it's been so overdone and you can find that content out there so easily, but there's not a lot of people talking about this La Sombra match <laughs> <laughs> or, or, you know, if they are talking about Tanahashi matches, they're, they're going to talk about one of the Tokyo domes. They're going to talk about a G one final. They're not talking yeah. about the invasion attack match. And uh, you know, I, I, really don't think enough people praise the master work that he did with Sakuraba. So I think that has to do with why we, I think we're trying to pick things that would be interesting to us creatively, but also for the audience to listen to. Yeah. We're out here digging for diamonds. 
we're not digging in the normal places everyone else is where we're out in the wild west <laughs> <laughs> yeah and for me since we've been doing this new project every week like for me i'm picking a lot of stuff that i have not seen and that i think would be interesting to talk about um so like you know la sombra i know as andrade i know he's a great wrestler but i've heard great things about him before and i just thought it'd be really interesting to see him and nakamura and just seeing what that looked like and just what la sombra was all about um so that's kind of how my mindset is going into these things. Uh, next question here from a Twitter follower at IWGP underscore fan says, I was rewatching Shinsuke Nakamura versus Yoshihiro Takeyama from Wrestle Kingdom 4 last night. And the timing of both men was on point, a great match, and was easily one of my favorite moments bringing him full circle. What are some of your standout moments in Nakamura's rise to legendary status? Oh, uh, that's a great question. Um, I mean, the Takayama series is really great. Uh, they had two big matches. There's one in 04. He said he watched the one from 09. Uh, yeah, Wrestle Kingdom 4. So I think so, yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, the first match that they had in the Tokyo Dome in 2004, though, uh, those kind of play into one another. And that's a really great match. Um, you know, if we're talking early era. I mean, you've got his third title win against Makabe, uh, which was the culmination of the uh, Chaos GBH feud. That's a big one. That's a great um, match. Very uh, bloody match. Yeah. His uh, two Tokyo Dome matches with uh, Hiroshi Tanahashi um, prior to the one that we just discussed. Um, those are big deals. His match with Kojima um, for the title. His math, his match with Muto when he dropped the title at New Japan Circuit. Um, those are kind of the ones that sort of stick out in my memory. Um, even the Brock Lesnar match, which is should have been a, be- a better match and a bigger deal, it, it's a pretty uh, interesting screenshot of where the company was and where the competitors were at the time that it happened. Sort of a dream match that you, you're never going to get again, and um, that one's interesting to watch also. Yeah, and I think we we kind of covered a lot of what other moments that have helped him, you know, rise to legendary status with these IC title runs, uh, and just the great defenses and um, you know elevating it to a main main event level. I think definitely helped his status as well. So uh, moving on to the next question here from uh, Kyle Moore's in the Wrestling Square Circle. He said, "If you could." Recommend a Shinsuke match to someone unfamiliar with his New Japan work. Other than the IC title match versus Styles, what would you recommend? Well, I think all three of us would, would recommend the matches that we reviewed here. Um, the Ibushi match, I think, is uh, personally my always the first one I would recommend. I'd actually say, for a, for a bit of a random shout-out, I'd, I'd say the Sakuraba match because it's only 10 or 12 minutes long. You know, I get annoyed when people recommend me a match and it's like, you know... 45 minutes. <laughs> give, give, uh, me a, give me a 12-minute match. <laughs> fair enough, but I think the, um, the what's it called match? It's like 20 minutes, the Yabushi match. Yeah, it's not that long. Yeah. Just, <laughs> I saw this uh, question before, and I, I thought the Sakuraba match is a, is a different option just because it, it really does show his strengths as a striker and some of the things that makes him unique. Um, one match that I'd recommend that I don't think it's enough recognition at all is his match with Ishii during the 2014 G1. Mm. Yeah. 
yeah, like you mentioned, yeah, his G1 runs did have a lot of gems in them that we didn't really cover here because we were focusing on the, the title reigns, but he did have some excellent G1 title matches, or G1 matches. Yep. Uh, so next question from Nicholas Guerrero. What do you think WWE could have done differently on the main roster to make Shinsuke as big of a star as he was in Japan in NXT? In NXT. Not jumping out to Jinder Mahal. They should have never had him lose to Jinder like that. It was a yeah. bad idea. Yeah, I mean, I feel like he was so hot. Even coming off the NXT run, he was so hot, and there was a lot of buzz of him coming to the main roster. I think they should have put the title on him. They should have. I mean, he has, he still hasn't won the title, and probably shouldn't now. But they should have put the title on him quickly after he made his main roster debut. I I mean, they didn't want to do this, but I don't think. I think the one thing they could have done a little bit differently is probably give him a manager. Mm. You know, I mean, I I I can't go super in depth with all the things they could have done differently. Cause there's so much that that was wrong with the company at the time and still is with how they book and just the structure of their entire like philosophy of booking. So there, there's a lot of things that could have changed and been done differently. But the one simple answer, I think they had a problem with him not speaking English. They could have had him have a mouthpiece and I think they should have had him cut promos in Japanese as well. And I don't, I don't think there, his mouthpiece needed to be Japanese or translate for him necessarily, but they could have had someone who was speaking for him and him, you know, I mean, think about like Tajiri and William Regal and how, however, like Tajiri kind of got when he had someone that was English speaking and he could like, you know, allude to the idea that he understands what they're saying, you know? Right. I would have also said in the WWE to, to speak about the way he was portrayed in the WWE, his character really didn't get to shine through until he turned heel. Yeah. And I feel like they could have done that earlier. They could have, they could have tweaked his baby face character early because he was hot. Like he was, he was hot. Um, I, I remember the pop that he got when his music hit at money in the bank, um, yeah. when he was in that money in the bank match and they, they had Baron Corbin take him out early on in the match. And then towards the end, his, like his music hit and the crowd went mental. And then he had this stare off with AJ Styles and the crowd was losing it. And potentially even, you know, the Jinder Mahal thing happened. And that was, I mean, that, that whole year of the SmackDown title was just atrocious. Like the amount of mistakes is ridiculous, but they could have saved it. If I think on the road to WrestleMania after he'd won the rumble, if he'd been able to start, shine having his heel character shine like have his character shine through a little bit more because that heel character was really just it really was just him in new japan that's what i felt like it was uh and if they had been if he'd been able to be a little bit more arrogant a little bit more cocky potentially in his run into um wrestlemania and then potentially won at wrestlemania i think it would have been a very different we'd be looking at a very different position for him in the company now than you know where he where he's ended up yeah i mean i i don't know i don't want to get too much into it anymore because once i start thinking about it, my the, the question i pose to you is what could they have done different to save everybody in that company because <laughs> nobody <laughs> nobody is over nobody is a star they haven't handled a single yeah. guy properly in like what a decade so you know i i don't know <laughs> yeah. how could they have, how could they have saved him not been themselves 
not BWWE. They suck. <laughs> <laughs> uh, next question from a friend of the show, Zach Porter. He says, do you both miss his subconscious theme as much as I do? Yeah, it's one of my favorites of all time. Um, was watching these matches with uh, my girlfriend this past week, and she is adamant. As much she loves Nakamura, she's adamant that his WWE theme is far superior to uh, the subconscious theme, which I think is ludicrous. I like I like both themes, but I think that this is an yep. all time banger. Love that guitar line. I agree. That, well, that was going to be my hot take, Josh. I was going to say, <laughs> I was going to say, subconscious is better than his WWE theme, but it is better than Rising Sun. They're both great, obviously, but yeah, yeah, that guitar line is sick, and it's just so good for his character, like the arrogance and the cockiness, and the rock star presentation. Yeah, I love subconscious, and yeah, it's I do think it's better than Rising Sun as well. Even though I love I love Rising Sun also, but yeah, that's subconscious. When you heard that, you know. Kind of that little like wind chime in the beginning and then kicking off in the guitar. Yeah, just some epic stuff right there. Uh, next question from Reddit user Highest Fly Flow. He says, Yao or Yao? Not to brag, more, not to brag but he's more of a, a Yao guy himself. Yes, Yao. Yao. <laughs> Yao. That's it. Yeah, I think it's it's spelled like it's. Like if you kind of look at it like in the English, it, it might you might think it's yao, but it's pronounced yao, like how he spelled it out in the second way there. Absolutely. Um, then we got a series of questions here from uh, Kyle Martin from the Wrestling Squared Circle. He says, "For someone who hasn't seen the first half of Shinsuke's career, is his run comparable to Randy Orton's?" I ask because I see a resemblance in the fact that they were both the youngest world champions at 23, and it took them each years to regain the title after countless failed main event pushes. Um, in terms of in-ring work, I wouldn't like draw too many illusions between the two guys, but I think that there's a, a career trajectory similarity that you've kind of pointed out there. I've never really thought about it. Yeah. I mean, two guys both pushed heavily to start their careers, both prodigies win the titles young under a certain persona later in their careers, they kind of, uh, reinvent themselves as a totally different guy and, you know, are pushed to the top of the card. Yeah, I see it there. Just to add on to that, but also never become the top number one guy um, or end up behind someone who was potentially, when they were bursting onto the scene, less favoured in John Cena and Tanahashi. Not that Tanahashi wasn't you know, spotlighted, but certainly Nakamura was picked out as the chosen one early. Yeah. Well, here's another one. Uh, 2009, Nakamura... Uh, kind of like returns and becomes like the top leader of Rise, and re- and also and starts chaos and be- becomes the IWGP Heavyweight Champion for the last time. 2009 was also when Randy Orton was doing his finest work as mm. the leader of Legacy, and was I would say arguably was the top guy for that period of time in 2009. Mm. Like he was the he was higher than Cena. To a certain respect. So I think there is even a similarity there in the, in the timeline of their careers. Yeah. I'll say this though Randy Orton versus John Cena is uh, nothing compared to Tanahashi versus Nakamura. Yeah, <laughs> yeah definitely I, not. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. I, I really like those Cena and Randy Orton matches. I, I might be alone in that. <laughs> uh, I guess after like the 15th one, I don't know. Just 
gets kind of old. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that 2009 series, they had the I Quit matches, they had the Last Man Standing matches. Those were good. Yeah. Or Iron the out, the, the Iron Man match. Yeah. Those were good. Yeah, that was that was the best one. Uh, this next question: Could you guys break down or explain what New Japan single belts represent in kayfabe, please? It's always fucked me with that the U.S. title is for all the gaijin. And the other week, Josh mentioned that the never belts concept changed as well. What happened there? I, I, to be honest with you, I don't think it's a hard and fast rule what the concept of any of the titles are. I don't think the U.S. titles for the gaijins. I think it's just been booked that only gaijins have held it. So maybe internally it's for the gaijins, but that was never like <laughs> announced. It was supposed to be a title that was used as like a top headlining title as part of their U S expansion. Obviously the expansion hasn't gone exactly the way they want it to. And they've very rarely ever had that title be defended in, <laughs> in the U S. So it kind of just became the de facto fourth belt. It's pretty much just the fourth belt. Like that's the deal. And the original concept for the never title is that it was supposed to be for um, young up and coming promising talent uh, from and even a lot of like outsiders were supposed to hold that belt in the beginning. Um, so guys that they could kind of like uh, poach, a la you know Kota Ibushi from other you know Japanese independent companies, and it it didn't happen that way. It, it kind of just became the Carl Gotch Strong Style World Heavyweight Championship, <laughs> right? Because never was going to be like a promotion slash show. That New Japan was going to run with these these young guys, and it's going to be essentially never was supposed to be like kind of like NXT in a way, like Lions Break Project, yeah. yeah, pretty much, and it didn't become that. But yeah, well, everything with all the other singles titles, I don't think there's any yeah really rules to. I'll tell you what the titles represent in kayfabe: IWGP one, IC two, <laughs> never three, US four. <laughs> What about, what about the junior title? Junior three. <laughs> Never four. <laughs> Tag team titles, five. <laughs> U.S. title, uh, actually, IWGP junior tag team title, six. Oh, U.S. title, man. seven. That's my favorite wrestler's the U.S. champion, man. Never, never six men, eight. <laughs> That's the kayfabe. <laughs> oh, man. That, that's not kayfabe. That's a shoot. <laughs> that's a shoot, brother. Then <laughs> uh, he asks, can a Canadian wrestler get over in America without ever working some dates in Japan? Test. <laughs> Dude, I, I, I loved Test growing up. T- t- test was over. Dude, I love Test growing up, man. <laughs> Edge. Edge, Christian, Edge, Christian. Test. Yep. <laughs> uh his next question, I heard a fucked up story that needs some explaining or debunking, please. Like, if the IWGP is a work, then what the hell is even real anymore? Anyways, with UFC 250 on the horizon, I need to know, in 1978, did Inoki buy an island and wrestle a 90-minute jungle death match against Masasaito in front of nobody? Um, <laughs> sounds like, sounds real to me. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think his first question about the IWGP being a work, then what the hell is real anymore? Is that I think he's just making a joke there. Uh, <laughs> of course, but, the uh, yeah, I know he did buy. Well, no, I know he did not buy an island like that island. I forget the name of it. It's like Gunja Gabai or something like that. It's a, um, I I just don't know how to pronounce it. But yeah, it's a uh, 
it's a very famous island in Japan where they had samurai uh, uh, duels, like legendary samurai duels. And so Masa Saito and Inoki were in the middle of a, uh, and it wasn't 1978, it was 1987 um, when this happened. But yeah, they had an island death match. It was basically a cinematic match. Like, it's like one of the first, well, I, there's been a lot over the years, but it's essentially a cinematic match. And yeah, it goes over 90 minutes. It's, I, I think it goes over two hours, if I remember correctly. It's freaking long. And uh, it's not especially good, but it's uh, <laughs> it's a spectacle. Yeah, it happened. And then they did it again with uh, Tiger Jeet Singh and uh, freaking Hiroshi Hase in like 1991. That one's a little shorter, but they're both uh, very, very long. So yeah, they're on New Japan World, I'm pretty sure. You imagine like a, a two hour long boneyard match. <laughs> yeah, that's like a feature length movie. That sounds awesome. <laughs> uh, uh, his last question here, just a hypothetical question: Would you guys be for New Japan creating a long, Young Lions Championship or holding an annual graduation tournament to crown a champion, similar to the original IWGP title concept? The winner can defend it in the next year's tournament or vacate it and go off for an excursion instead. No, I'm not for it. I think that that's a cool concept. And maybe if I was uh, running, like, say, a Lions division on, like, WWE 2K, then maybe that would be something fun to entertain myself with. But I don't like the concept for a few reasons. Uh, Number one, the young Lions generally don't really get an especially big push until they really come back from excursion. Anyways, they're, they're, they're there to like learn and we're there to kind of see them grow, but to put a title on them, like you're taking, you're, you're putting prestige on a, on a concept of a championship that really isn't going to be that prestigious later on because those guys might not work out. You know what I mean? Um, I don't think there's a bad idea of them having annual tournaments, but they haven't done it annually because it hasn't always worked out. Like they don't always have a full class to do a young lions cup or to do a graduation. And it, there isn't always like a quote unquote graduation. Like oh, some guys, everyone progresses at different rates. Some guys are ready. Some guys are not ready. And, you know, I, I do like the concept in theory, but I don't think it's uh, implementable in reality. What do you think, Sam? Yeah. Well, I, I just like, I don't think they need a belt. They're not really there to have a championship at all. Um, you know, they're there to learn. They're there to get a little bit of exposure. They're there for the crowd to sort of start to get to know them, but they're not really meant to be in any sort of a, um, like a prestige position or a, a highlighted position. Uh, and they have the Young Lions Cup, which, you know, that's that's their tournament that they get to have. And I think, you know, that's a really cool tournament that they get every now and again when it, when they've got enough people there. And I think that's, I mean, considering that new Japan is also a a tournament promotion, they hold the G one, they have the best super juniors, like having, giving them a tournament, I think is enough of a highlight and enough of a sort of a a moment for them to focus towards. Um, And they don't really need a belt outside of that. Yeah. I mean, look at what happened with like Kitamura, uh, company super high on him they plan to give him a big push they're gonna accelerate him and it just doesn't work out and now in the history books they got kitamura as like this 
champion uh, as one of their tournament champions. And, you know, he's not really there anymore. And, you know, Carl Fredericks won it this past year. He's another guy that they they really plan to push. And we're very high on him. And uh, I, I see big things from him. But who's to say that a year or two from now, he, he's not gone? You know, maybe he is, maybe he isn't. We don't really know that sort of thing. But um, I think they just have to kind of be careful on even putting any sort of prestige on a young line unless they have some sort of clear, real indication that they're going with him long term, you know? Right, yeah. I agree with both of you guys. Uh, I love the, the Young Lions Cup tournament, and whenever they do those, those are always uh, fun to watch and um, great for those guys. And I love when guys get a shot in the bigger tournaments, like when we've seen like Narita mm. in the uh, Best Super Juniors, or we see uh, Connors in the Super J Cup, and we're, we get to see some of these Young Lions get spots in those tournaments. I think those are more beneficial for them, um, just learning-wise, being able to be guys who are more talented than them than creating this like young lines title and having defenses and stuff like that. Now I wouldn't be opposed to developing a young lion championship for me to hold. (laughs) 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 Uh, Last question here from Muzza Murray bone. He says, while not a question about Nakamura with the IC title currently still on Naito, who can you see be the next IC champion and why? Um, I I I think that like, yeah, I'd, uh, he may not be the next champion, but the guy who I'd like to see get a really good run with it would be Zack Sabre Jr. Mm. Um, I think I don't think he's ever going to be at the heavyweight level, IWGP heavyweight level, but I think he could be a really solid, long-running IC champion. Um, you know, I don't think that this will be the next guy who gets it, but someone I would love to see hold the title and get a push with it, Tomohiro Ishii. Yeah, I mean... Ishii always has no great, great matches there. Uh, for me, the two guys that I would love to see are Shingo and Will Ospreay. Oh, yeah. Obviously, those yep. guys are... I think both of those guys could be IWGB heavyweight champion, but in, in the quest to get there, I think giving those guys some runs with the IC titles and having the best match of the night with the IC titles and main eventing on the B shows, C shows with those guys with the IC title, I think would be great. Yeah. And we don't have to get into a discussion with it, but we don't even know what the future of this belt is, whether it's going to be defended separately, if they're going to split, if it's going to get vacated, if it's, uh, you know, just part, if it's merged, we don't know. Yeah. Well, that wraps up all the questions, and we just have two uh, quick news items here. So it did come out this week that uh, New Japan Pro Wrestling is um, inviting fans and members of the media to watch a special online press conference this coming up Tuesday, June 9th, um, noon Japan time, and the press conference will be concerned on the resuming of New Japan events, and this press conference is going to be available to watch on NJPW World and YouTube. Uh, we are recording this show on Saturday. So, Kayfabe. <laughs> so obviously we're, we're not going to have the details for this press conference, and we normally record on Monday, so we still wouldn't have had the details even on our, our normal day. So we don't know exactly what the plan is. We've heard some rumors, but obviously it looks like we're going to get New Japan back very soon. And we've had a lot of discussion on the show what we think potential scenarios for a return could look like, different show concept ideas, uh, different business perspectives, As you know, depending on whether they run empty arenas, whether they run semi-arenas, you know, with partial fans and 
everything of that nature. So at this point, we don't really know. And by the time you're listening, most likely the, the news will already be out. So this is going to be a little dated. So it doesn't make a lot of sense to uh, speculate too much. But I can tell you right now, I haven't been this excited for a press conference uh, with New Japan since like, I don't know, since like Kenny Omega had his head bandaged up and jumped all over Jericho. <laughs> Jericho. <laughs> Jericho threw a freaking table at the press. Like, like uh, this is gonna be lit. I, I, it seems like this would be them announcing what's gonna happen with coming back, and it's, it's time. Like, even though in, in lots of places COVID nineteen is under control here in Australia, we've had sport back. Well, one of the sport winter sports rugby league back for two weeks now. Um, they've actually even announced that next weekend they'll start having crowds. Um, they're going to be very small crowds, and I think just in corporate boxes to start with. But, you know, that shows that things are starting to open up again. So hopefully, fingers crossed, you know, this. hopefully we're getting them saying we're going to be having a big old tournament, big old G1 later in the year, and getting in the best of Super Juniors, and we can all get excited for New Japan again. Definitely. And, and to go along with that, uh, Bushi Road's PR came out this week also uh, saying we put the information on antibody testing for all athletes and performers to resume to live event. In addition, aiming to resume live events such as professional wrestling, the stage and live music, we will inform you that we decide to carry out an antibody test for all players for the safety and security of the players and performers. Um, you know, I don't want to criticize the company too much, but I will tell you this, if their aim is to you know, be as thorough with safety as they possibly can be. Antibody testing is not enough. They need to be testing for active COVID tests as well as the antibody. All antibody will tell you is whether someone has previously had it, not whether they could potentially currently have it. So that, that, that's not sufficient enough at all. Yeah. And I know that's kind of why UFC went away from doing it as well. And I did hear that they were, also getting, um, at least New Japan was, I think, are getting the COVID testing kits or at least as much as they can um, as part of this relaunch here. Well, they're, as far as I've heard in most parts of the world, uh, those tests are readily available at this point in time, just in, you know, in response to the pandemic. So I don't, don't see any reason that a, a large corporation like Bushi Road shouldn't be able to uh, provide the performers with it. I could be presumptuous here. Maybe there is a reason, but uh, you know, for all the talk of their safety, which we have applauded them every step of the way, they've been the most, you know, socially responsible wrestling company. Uh, I would just have to imagine if they're going to continue that trend that they're going to also test like other companies are, because if they aren't, then kind of goes back on, you know, a lot of what they've kind of worked to do here. Yeah. Um, but I think that is pretty much going to do it. Uh, um, Sam, it's been a pleasure having you on the show here. Um, you know, tell us about any projects you're working on, where we can find you, anything that you got upcoming, you know, plug your shit. Yeah. Look, you can find me on Twitter, uh, on sir, at sir underscore Samuel. Uh, or if you go to wrestlingheadlines.com, you can see my, generally it's a weekly column at the moment. Uh, I'm had a, had a week or two off, um, just with some stuff going on in my family and just, enjoying a bit of a break, but typically I write there once a week. Uh, but yeah, main place to get me would be Twitter, sir underscore Samuel. But thanks very much for having me. Really appreciate 
uh, you guys having me on. Yeah, loved having Absolutely. you. And um, I see that you guys are, are doing a uh, Lords of Pain draft, and I, have, I just want to tell you that you are cleaning up in that draft, sir. <laughs> <laughs> you, <laughs> you are just mopping the floor with those guys, man. So <laughs> my, my strategy is basically pick a WWE guy and then put them against a New Japan wrestler. <laughs> so I've got like this the the. The, the known name of the uh, of the WWE worker and then the you know the quality the the true in ring quality of a New Japan wrestler. Yeah. <laughs> so good stuff there. Nice. Check out Sir Sam on Twitter and all his columns at wrestlingheadlines.com and Well Jeremy, it looks like we need to powder out this bitch. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So uh, next week we'll be back with Rich Latta from One Nation Radio and Social Suplex to discuss the winner of the Elite Poll. So go out hey. there and vote. <laughs> <laughs> Kenny Omega, Young Bucks, Hangman Page, or Cody. If you want to pull a rib on Rich, then you can vote for Cody. Uh, but vote for who you want to talk about next week here with Rich Latta. If you enjoyed today's show, please consider making a donation, visiting socialsuplex.com slash donate and clicking on the donate button under the Keeping It Strong Style logo. Make sure you connect with us on social media. The show is at KI Strong Style on Twitter. You can follow me at Jeremy L. Donovan. You can also follow us at Social Suplex. On Facebook, we are facebook.com slash social suplex. You can find us in the Wrestling Squared Circle Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash wrestling squared circle. On Instagram, we're at Social Suplex. On Reddit, on the Pro Black Guy, Josh is keeping it strong style. You can email me, Jeremy, at socialsuplex.com. Check out all the other shows on the Social Suplex Podcast Network. On Sundays, we have One Nation Radio, hosted by Rich Latta and James Boyd. On Wednesdays, pretty soon, hopefully, we'll have the return of the Ricky and Clive Wrestling Show. We also have our podcast dedicated to independent wrestling, Grown Men Watch This Shit, hosted by Jeremy Tate and Chris Bryan. On Fridays, we have Get in the Ring with Danny and Beast Mike. And then on Saturdays, we have All Things Elite with Floyd Johnson Jr., Amy O., Tiffany, and Austin. So don't forget to subscribe and leave a rating and review. And we'll catch you next time on Keeping It Strong Style, the ace of podcasts. Yow! Thank you for listening to Keeping It Strong Style. We'll see you next time. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.